to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. I'm, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Yes, folks, just as I promised at the end of the much-delayed part two, here we are only a day or two later, thank God for lost time, with part three of four. Yes, this is indeed the third part of a four-part series of our probably overly in-depth look at Paul McCartney's 2001 Driving Rain. And with this being episode three, you are indeed correct. This is a conversational back-and-forth song-by-song album review. And seeing as how that we have no time to lose, there is no need to do any further cock-teasing. You know what type of episode this is. I know what type of episode this is. And we both know how much we're going to enjoy it. In terms of guests, we're playing it safe today with... One of our most esteemed guests ever. He he is the the pod father. He is the king of primo Beatles content. And aside from the fact that, you know, he does bring in the views, I just cherish every moment I have talking with this man. Returning for the umpteenth time, because we're just that lucky, we have Mr. Ken Michaels on the show, folks. I love Ken, you love Ken, and we both know how much... He is just the most delightful man ever. I'm going to do my classic overly flirtatious introduction for him shortly, but, you know, let me just urge you, as always, to go and check out his two podcasts, or podcast and videocast being Things We Said Today, his Beatles podcast, and Talk More Talk, his solo Beatles videocast, as well as his widely syndicated radio show, Every Little Thing. All three are far better and more knowledgeable than this little podcast, so if you've had enough of the dick jokes, please Go and listen to him if you haven't already, but I know you have. You're all good out there. You do the repping for the show. So, yeah, nothing too complicated here, folks. We're just going to talk about the album, talk about the era, and go through song by song with Ken, trying his hardest not to rise to my provocations or mock my crazily wild hot takes. But before we can do any of that, we do indeed have the small matter of the housekeeping. Starting off, what do we have in terms of news for today, everyone? Well, of course, the big one, the big kahuna, now that we're catching up with a modern recording, we're doing this in November now, and we've had the release of the big Revolver box set. Yes, folks, Revolver has had its re-release. Not quite the 50th anniversary that, you know, all the other ones had, but we have got to at this point. It's actually happened. You know, I know a lot of people thought it was going to end with Abbey Road. There was much speculation about whether this was was or even could come out, and it is indeed here. I'm looking at my lovely box set right now. I'm not holding it because I feel like my fingers might be a little bit too sweaty to hold it. But yeah, I can't wait to talk about this, folks. Normally, I do kind of be a little bit spoilerish, but honestly, I'm going to be doing a full episode on this after I release Driving Rain Part 4. It's the next thing I'm going to be working on. I really don't want to say too much about it, other than, oh, I do rather like it. <laughs> it is it is, it is, pretty nice, that has to be said. And, of course, all of my wonderful Patreon patrons out there are the people who allow me to save up such uh, pocket money to allow me to get 
this vinyl box set. Ooh, yeah. I'm going to be tearing into this one very, very soon, folks. So just keep your ear to the ground on that one. In actual news, uh, there's been a Paul McCartney uh, comic strip in The Dandy. Uh, the Dandy is a, a, a children's cartoon comic strip that's been going for decades now here in the UK, like since the 50s or 60s. It, it is definitely that old, at least. And there was a cartoon that was created for it by a cartoonist called Nigel Parkinson, though it was never used. And, you know, it's it, it's all these panels, just kind of like Paul going through, quote-unquote, a day in the life, and every single interaction he has is basically him saying lyrics of a Beatles song or the titles of a Beatles song. It's all just cleverly punned. It's all very charming and humorous. Uh, but it's all gone on display. The original comic and an unused storyboard that shows different jokes have gone on display at the Liverpool Beatles Museum. Apparently, Paul emailed Mr. Parkinson and said, thank you so much, it was brilliant. Uh, apparently, Paul told him that some members of his family said it was the greatest thing he'd ever been associated with, which is a fantastic joke on the part of the other McCartneys. Way to tear down granddad there, kids. That That's really funny. You know, normally these new segments don't reveal anything about McCartney in himself, but I think we had a little peek behind the curtain there, that's for sure. Then, uh, since I last recorded, Paul kind of went uh, viral with his handstand. Uh, he, he was doing his yoga. Does everyone remember this? This was going around the internet a couple of weeks ago, and I was just sh shocked to see how... I don't know, present it was in media, like it was on all the generic tabloid sites here in the UK. I saw it in a couple of newspapers the next day. Uh, a, few, a few people who I didn't know to be McCartney fans talked about it on like their Facebook pages and Twitter and stuff like that. So yeah, it was just funny to see Paul go viral in the modern day, just, you know, for being a man who is 80 plus now doing yoga. Of course, last time we mentioned Grand Dude's Green Submarine Yoga. So yeah, a, lot, a lot of Paul McCartney yoga in the zeitgeist at the moment. Then we have the great news that uh, Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back by Disney did very well at this year's Emmy Awards. Uh, you know, for any non-Americans, I guess, who might be listening, the Emmys are, of course, um, the equivalent of like a, a television BAFTA here in the UK. Like it's the highest honor for any television show to even be nominated for an Emmy, let alone win one. But yeah, you know, you, you might say it's the Oscars of television. And obviously in the era of uh, the, the golden age of television that we're supposedly going through right now, it has seen even greater kind of uh, cultural import. And yeah, the Fab Four have been represented. Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back by Disney. Of course, technically counted as a television series. It was released on Disney Plus on a streaming platform, which is television, not cinema. And so it was nominated for, I think, I think it was six Emmys, but it won five out of those six folks. So yeah, it cleaned out in terms of what it was qualified to win. I feel like it's kind of congruous to one of those movies at the Oscars that like wins all of the technical awards, I guess. Uh, you know, this is a documentary, of course, so, like, there's not going to be any awards for acting or special effects or anything like that. But what they did win was, you know what, let's go from bottom to top. 
outstanding sound mixing for a non-fiction or reality program, single or multi-camera, and that was awarded to Michael Hedges, Brent Burge, Alexis Fyodorov, and Giles Martin, and that was for part three, so like the rooftop episode. Then we have outstanding sound editing for a non-fiction or reality program, single or multi-camera. This was awarded to Martin Kwok, Emile Delaray, Matt Stutter, Michael Donaldson, Stephen Gallagher, Tane, Up John Beetson, and Simon Riley. Also for part three, you're gonna see a, a pattern here. Then they won the Emmy for Outstanding Picture Editing for a Non-Fiction Programme, which was awarded to Yabez Olsen, also for part three. And then we have the one that I was gunning for the most, which is Outstanding Directing for a Documentary Slash Non-Fiction, which was awarded to Mr. Peter Jixon. Thank God he won. I mean, I've been, I've been behind Peter the whole way on this project, Mr. Jackson. Uh, I've, I, I always wanted him to do well. I knew he would, but you know, I, I was always, I was always rooting. You know, and I knew he would deliver something that would, you know, befit the word outstanding. You know, for outstanding directing, outstanding picture editing, etc. Because that, that really is an apt word for this project. You know, the fact that Jackson and his team were able to go back and not only reuse this footage and reshoot it and you know make it look beautiful at the same time but also like to recontextualize it and retell it in such a, a dynamic and informative way is one of the most spectacular television experiences I've ever had it is it is beyond what we deserve as fans it's such a good documentary and I'm glad that the normies, you know, are paying attention to it as well. We knew it was a success, come on, of course we did. But it has been confirmed now in the public eye, and the crowning jewel is the Emmy for Outstanding Documentary or Non-Fiction Series. So in the era of, you know, Netflix true crime docs and that kind of thing, Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back is still reigning supreme. It is really fucking awesome. Then, folks... Do you remember when we talked about that story where the National Trust here in the UK was going to open up like Paul McCartney's childhood house for like young artists and musicians to work in? Well, that's actually borne some fruit now, uh, like the, the, these McCartney home recordings, and I believe several uh, you know groups and musicians have been practicing there and songwriting there, but. The National Trust on their YouTube page has decided to highlight two of those groups. Uh, the first is uh, Nymaxine or Nymaxine, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember quite remember the pronunciation there, and a band called Traits. And they have both recorded uh, their own version, their own style, their own take on Love Me Do, which is really cool. You know, I'd love to play Love Me Do in Paul McCartney's childhood home, but. I would have thought that the National Trust would have like, you know, got some original songs to showcase from this. Maybe they can't. Maybe that. Maybe this was part of the deal all along. Maybe you know those groups don't want to uh, introduce their songs this way. But you know, having them like, you know, right there and be inspired there, surely that would come out with something unique. I don't know. But instead, we get two performances, two covers of "Love Me Do," and yeah, of course, I'm going to be playing them now for you. Hi, I'm Nee Maxine, 
It's so exciting to be performing here for the anniversary of Love Me Do. It feels amazing to be part of the history of this house and this music. We're trade somewhere from Liverpool. 60 years since Love Me Do was released and we're here celebrating it. Love me too. 
they were both pretty good, weren't they? They were both pretty different. They were definitely uh, very auteur in their take on the material there. It wasn't just them doing the song, which is good. Uh, not blown away or anything, but, you know, look, the, the point is, is that these artists are very similar ages to the Beatles themselves when they would have performed Love Me Do. I believe it's the 60th anniversary of Love Me Do being released when this came out. So, yeah. I, I think we can all say that there are some bright futures for these kids. Maybe not as the bands they are now, maybe they'll break off and do other different things, but there's a lot of talent there. Speaking of houses, Aunt Mimi's house has sold at auction. The family home where John Lennon practiced with Sir Paul uh, has been sold for almost £280,000, according to various sources. It is described as a modest three-bedroom semi, in Blomfield Road in Allerton, Liverpool. You know, obviously to all of us, it's just that place from Nowhere Boy where Macker and John skived off and learned their trade, etc., etc. But it is an actual house and it's not, I don't know, historically significant enough, I guess, to just automatically be a protected property that can't be sold off. But, you know, it has been. Uh, it's been publicly auctioned, but it's not just gone to anyone. It's not going to become a Starbucks or anything, folks. Do not fear. The auctioneer has described it as having gone to a very passionate Beatles fan. And for £280,000, that is certainly a very passionate fan. But let's see what becomes of it. I don't know if any of you will be able to do, you know, visit this house. I mean, I don't want people flooding there or anything, but... It'd be nice to know who this guy is. I'd love to get him on the show. I'd love to hear his story. But, yeah, one of us, one of us uh, probably overly zealous Beatles fans is now in possession of Aunt Mimi's house. How interesting. Then, uh, a Christmas compilation album that McCartney appeared on back in 2012 called Holiday's Rule has just had uh, a vinyl release that came out on October 30th. I actually haven't listened to all of this yet. I was, in my original write-up for this uh, new segment, I thought it was just a new album. I'd never heard of it before. And then I went on to Spotify and it said 2012. And I was like, oh, let me just go back and check this. And yeah, this is a vinyl release that that didn't come out the first time. I think it was just digital and CD. And now we can get a vinyl one because obviously everything with McCartney's got to have a vinyl because we'll buy it. If any of you haven't heard this album, McCartney plays Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire that I will play at the end of the episode. And there's also a group called The Shins that plays Wonderful Christmas Time that I'm sure I'll play in a future one as well. And finally, folks, we've had the death of iconic performer, singer Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, the Beatles played loads of his songs during their time, including Mean Woman Blues, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, High School Confidential, You Win Again, When the Saints Go Marching In, It'll Be Me, Great Balls of Fire, Jambalaya on the Bayou, Down the Line, Fools Like Me, and Living Loving Wreck. And yeah, apparently, according to uh, Jerry Lewis's Facebook page, he was the reason that McCartney got into playing piano in the first place. Uh, Lewis was uh, sat on the, uh, the quote-unquote Beatle table at the 2015 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner with Yoko and Ringo and Paul and Olivia. So he's clearly a massive influence on this story. That is undeniable. And, you know, he sold a lot of records and probably made a lot of people happy. But also, he was kind of 
an abusive asshole who, at 22, married his 13-year-old niece. So the less said about him on this podcast, the better. I think we'll end it there. And that is the end of the news, folks. And we'll move right on to the emails. As always, to get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccullypod at gmail.com. I love any and all correspondence, no matter how tangentially linked it is to the Big Mac himself. We have a couple of emails for you today. Our first one is someone who, till very recently, was one of our Patreon patrons. I hope they are able to return. Not in the sense that I get the money, just I hope that, that there are no financial woes upon them at this time. They have the very on-topic, if cryptic, name of Eleanor's Dream. They say, Dear Sam, I just wanted to write in and say how much I'm enjoying your podcast. As a relatively new listener, the exciting thing is is that there is so much of it. I'm sure there are far more people listening than ever bothered to get in touch. And having been one of those people for quite a while, I want to thank you for all the work you put in and for all your enthusiasm, which makes it always such a pleasure. To paraphrase someone, you take a dull day and make it better. I think it's great that you've considered Paul's career from an almost every conceivable angle. I'm just hoping for an episode on the paintings before too long. Peace and love, E. P.S. I'm intrigued by your choice of no words as the show closer and would love to know the thinking behind it. I've always enjoyed no words. And thanks to the internet, I know I'm not the only one who considers it at least partly as a song for John Lennon. And this is in spite of it being a co-write with Denny. I mean, that must be an All You Need Is Love reference in the second verse, right? And the clincher is the It's Only Me at the end, which surely recalls the famous Glasses story. As in, you know, when John says, It's Only Me, Paul. I really hope this interpretation is correct, if only because, sentimental fool that I am, it would mean that Paul did get to say I love you in song while John was still around to hear it. There's Dear Friend, of course, but Dear Friend is so sad. Thank you so much for that email there, Eleanor's Dream. Thank you so much. That was really touching. You know, of course, I always read out the complimentary emails on this show, but I always read out the negative ones as well. And for you to send a positive one is always something that touches my heart. And thank you for finally bringing up the the topic of no words. The reason why I chose it as the closer for the show is not because of any particular affinity with the song, although I do love it, but I, 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 I didn't put it at the end of the show because it's my favourite song or anything. I put it at the end of the show just because I really felt like the... I really felt like that was so final and epic and it just felt like, you know, a subject was coming to a close. It naturally fit, you know, very much in the same way that using Temporary Secretary as the intro just kind of fit. Also, I don't think I've covered Paul's career from every conceivable angle. Um, I'm sure in the future I will do a Marxist, uh, a fascist review of McCartney, uh, you know, a totalitarian view of McCartney, a masculinist view of McCartney. Uh, you know, there are so many philosophical uh, diatribes I could go down, but no, I don't think that would make a, as much uh, entertaining content as just me talking about Uwe Soleil for half an hour, you know. But yeah, thank you so much for emailing in. Thank you so much for that. That really brightened my day. I do appreciate that. And our next email is from a fellow podcaster, which is always nice to see. His name is Cristiano. And he says, Hi, Sam. I've listened to part one of your Driving Rain series. Wow, one of the best presented shows I've listened to. 
I'm a co-host of Words, the Bee Gees podcast with my dad, and we often find it difficult to keep a constant conversation for 90 minutes or two hours. So for you to spend three hours on your own and discussing the difficult subject matters that you did is so commendable and inspiring. I recommended the episode to my dad, and he felt the same way. Driving Rain is one of my all-time favourite albums. It was one of the very first McCartney albums that I ever heard, and so it always held a special key to my heart. And for you to dedicate this time, and this is only part one, is fantastic. I've been working backwards through your album discussions, currently at Off The Ground. These episodes are fantastic, so insightful, and the level of detail you go into regarding the activities of the McCartney family is unparalleled. I can't wait for the rest of the Driving Rain episodes and future album discussions. P.S. If you ever need anyone to wax lyrical about chaos and creation, electric arguments, or new, or even kisses on the bottom, then I'd be more than happy to share my two cents worth. Thanks for the hard work, Sam. Kind regards, Cristiano. Oh, there is genuinely a tear in my eye right now, folks. I don't mean to be overly sentimental here or anything. Uh, whenever you do something that is remotely creative or uh, fueled by your own ire, uh, to have a valid, you know, such validation is always touching. We've had two nice emails today. Oh, how can I not? shed a tear of joy for the lovely people who write in and make it all worthwhile you know stuff like that really does get me out of bed in the morning as i always say and as obviously humble as i am i will pat myself on the shoulder every now and then thank you christiana thank you as a peer uh, you know i really do appreciate that i'll definitely be checking out words your bg's podcast i'll be recommending everyone here to do the same uh I will say to you, though, this podcast, not to pat myself on the back, has gotten better as I've gone on. So as you go backwards through the show, don't be surprised if there is a, you know, a, a, <laughs> a progressive lack of detail, I guess. Though that is what I'm looking forward to in the future, to you know, doing the McCartney album and Ram and Wildlife and Red for Speedway again to get that level of detail that I know I can do now. And I think everyone here will respond quite well to that. I'd like to think so anyway. Thank you so much once again. Folks, if any of you have anything to say to me, good or bad, or just about Paul McCartney, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod for daily updates for the show, as well as my online ramblings. For bonus written Paul or nothing content, check out paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. In terms of the socials, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney podcast for... Uh, our, our YouTube, of course, you can find all of our episodes there in video form. And it is the only place where you can find brand new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, our sister show where me and a guest for about 90 minutes talk about McCartney memorabilia and collecting Beatles products and going through their own attic where they show you five interesting, rare or valuable items from their own collections. It's really fun stuff. Go and check out our YouTube page. That's Paul McCartney Pod or Paul or Nothing. And if you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review, whether good or bad. And finally, if you want to support the show directly, please consider joining the Paul or Nothing Patreon. Thank you so much for that. Uh, There's a recent vlog episode that I've just put up, and I'll probably be doing a bonus episode just for the Patreon where I show off my brand new revolver box set. Maybe I'll talk about the Let It Be one again as well but i just want to give a huge shout out to my patreon family the people who literally make this all happen you know they put their money 
where their mouth is. So let me give a huge shout out to the people who make Paul or Nothing what it is today. Stephanie Bradley, Louise Overberg, Austin Rapp, John Carp, Brian Brinkman, Annie McNeil, Ball76, Percy Thrillington, David Stabersky, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoe, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Teresa Brader, Cheryl McCoy, Louis DiLonardo, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, and Matt Phillips. Of course, folks, if you're not part of this wonderful family already, it is not just a gimme. You actually do get your money's worth. You get you get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get one week's early access to all episodes of Mackett and you're at it. You get bonus lost and deleted episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get to read all the scripts and you get the video content. So whenever I do a video version of our podcast, particularly when I do one with a guest, it's uploaded immediately unedited to the live feed. So you get to see the, the full Paul or Nothing experience and you get to see my wonderful mug as well. But yeah, folks, I've already said I didn't want to delay you any further and I pretty much have so let's just get right into the episode one two three go me right now everyone it's time for me to bring out one of my most well no not one of my most it's my most esteemed guest you all know who he is by now he's been the host of the widely syndicated beatles radio show every little thing he has his own youtube channel he's the host of the beatles podcast things we said today one of the co-hosts of the solo beatles video cast talk more talk and he's a pretty nice chap on top of that as well, uh, you know, he's one of my favourite people to talk with on this show. I've had him on a bunch of times in the past. Go and check out them in Passim. I've, I've, be, I've been on several of Ken's YouTube episodes as well. I strongly recommend you go and check them out. But yeah, he is the pod father. Everyone, please welcome back friend of the show, Mr. Ken Michaels. What's going on, my friend? Thank you, Sam. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. And, you know, from time to time, I like inviting you back because mm-hmm. you always have a very fresh perspective on everything, which is important. <laughs> I also like to get um, the views of, of younger Beatle fans of the world. That was the last thing we did where it was me, Dylan CV, who, uh, is, uh, who's been on this show before. He also wrote the theme for uh, Two Legs as well as Skylar Moody, who I've had on a, an episode of Mac in Your Attic. That was recorded at my friend's house during a barbecue, actually. I just had to kind of trot off for a couple of hours there with several people wondering where, where I was. But thankfully, I was not disturbed. I'm just trying to think about what's really changed since since we last spoke of, of, of course, the big ones. The uh, Revolver album coming out. I know everyone's looking forward to that. We're all going to be doing episodes on it in the future, I am sure. The only, the only real major McCartney news for me was um, how bad my copy of McCartney uh, 123 was. I, uh, I got the box set, uh, the uh, coloured vinyl one, and it arrived with two of the inner sleeves torn. On the copy of McCartney 1, there were finger and thumb prints, oh. and the cardboard box was dented. Real, uh, real shit show. So... Uh, <laughs> I did I, I did a whole Patreon bonus episode about it. Uh, fans of the show will be uh, groaning already. But, yeah, that's the biggest McCartney thing to happen to me, bro. <laughs> I'm sorry you went through that. You know, oh. uh, people who follow me will know that I don't necessarily feel I have to buy every single archival release. Well, actually, you know, I have all the music anyway. And I'm, as long as I have the originals and when they get remastered, I buy them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm happy with that. I don't have to get the box set just to combine all three together. And mm-hmm. I don't need to 
go to those lengths. But, you know, I don't knock anyone that does. You know, we certainly know the people that are out there buying them. Well, I mean, you know, the first place where the Beatles demo uh, one of one one of the, one of the songs uh, it was it was Taxman, I believe. That's Spotify. It's it's free essentially. You know, they are just uh, you will just be able to with any streaming service get this whole revolver box set anyway. So don't worry out there, folks. If you don't want to shell out one hundred ninety two pounds or huh, gosh knows however many dollars that is, I dread to think. Well, I um, looked on Amazon, by the way, yesterday, and the box set for CDs, the five CD set, is 160 bucks, okay. and five LP set is two hundred dollars. I think that's outrageous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, I'm just um, I'm kind of outspoken about this because I'm dead set against this EP of four songs. You know, taking up a whole CD, which is going to cost you more money, and I don't. Uh. Really, I'm not in favor of including the mono version okay. of every single box set because it's been out there. And if people wanted to, they could have bought the box set. I guess now the only way to get the mono releases for those people who haven't bought them yet is to go through these box sets. And um, it's just padding the bill. Give me the remix. Give me the two CDs of, of uh, outtakes and I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And give me the booklet. That shouldn't cost any more than 80 to $100 on my side. That's to me. I'm sorry. Well, you know, it's- we're encouraging them, though, aren't we? Uh, I mean, every single one of these, whether it's a McCartney archive, whether it's one of the 500 re-releases of Imagine or Plastic Ono Band put out by the Lennon Estate or the Beatles stuff, it always, if it doesn't sell out, it, it always sells enough for them to carry on doing the same kind of thing again. Uh-huh. You know, it's 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 never going to stop. I dread to think... How many versions, coloured versions on vinyl McCartney's next album will have? Uh, but that's the thing. I don't care about that stuff. I just care about having the music. So mm-hmm. it's definitely worth it for Revolver to hear the outtakes. And for those of you who are into the remixes, mm-hmm. you know, I definitely would encourage that. I just think it's it's way overpriced. But then some of the solo box sets have been, but there you go. <laughs> Anyway, keeping things clean, let's jump into the album itself. We're talking about Driving Rain today, folks, as you all know by the last two episodes. Uh, it was released on the 12th of November 2001. Now, tell me, Ken, do you remember much about this one at the time of release? Was there much hype around this album? Do you remember your initial reaction? I don't remember there being too much hype about it. I think that uh, you know people were talking about it since it was... Uh, well, after um, Run, Devil, Run, you know, the first album of mainly original songs after mm-hmm. Linda's passing, he was dating Heather Mills at the time, although he wasn't married to her yet. People were curious to find out what it would be like with a new relationship, I think. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember there being too much too much hype around it. Um, I do remember, you know, he was going to tour with the album, so we knew that he was going to do some songs from it. And, um, you know, it wasn't that well received from what I remember. I think people were only excited because he was touring at the time, Mm -hmm. um, his first tour since 1993. um, And uh, and he was going to do songs from it. So how would he bounce back after Mm -hmm. losing Linda? And, um, you know, Run Devil Run was a great cathartic album for him Mm -hmm. to... 
you know, just rock out and do a lot of 50s rock with a few original songs. And I think he needed to get that out of his system. But this was the first time he did all original songs since then. And it's kind of funny. We did a show on on uh, Talk More Talk on Driving Rain not too long ago. And yes. a comment that one of our listeners sent in was something I never really thought about before because I've always enjoyed these songs as they were, singing along with them, liking the words. Also mm -hmm. recognizing there are some songs that are melancholy, like from a lover to a friend or something like that. But one person wrote in saying, it's almost like, it starts off being songs about losing Linda and then towards the end, it's about finding a new love with Heather. Yeah. It never really looked at it that way until now. So um, it, it makes it an even more interesting release now. But when I first listened to the album, I liked it a lot. I felt that it's a lot of music to put into one CD. It went on for a long time. Um, I think there's more than an hour's worth. I haven't timed it. Ooh, uh, all the music, once you add in Rinse the Raindrops, a long track like that, and then the bonus track of Freedom. One hour, um, seven minutes. An hour and seven? Okay. That's mad. But uh, yeah, I like the songs a lot. The only thing that I felt about this, this album was that while I like the songs, I didn't feel necessarily like there was a lot of thought put into the sequencing of all the songs. Like, did they flow really well into each other? But yet I like the songs. It's like one good song after another, but did they work in that order necessarily? Mm -hmm. And I don't ever have a problem with Paul in that, in that uh, decision-making. I always felt like the songs worked in the order as he presented them on his albums. But well, I always liked it. I never knew till later on that this is one of the lowest ranked McCartney albums in his mm -hmm. catalog. But um, we could talk more about that as, as we go along here. Of course. Now it's clear that the kind of uh, Beatles anthology popularity boost and the uh, flaming pie high was well and truly over by this point. I'd argue that this is probably one of the most context laden McCartney albums. Of course, the whole point of Paul and all I think is that I'm going into these albums fresh without that context, but you know, it's now stuff happening with within my own lifetime. And of course, it's 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 very hard not to think constantly about the loss of Linda, Heather, uh, the introduction of Heather Mills, and then of course the September 11th attacks as well, which kind of put, puts a pall over the entire thing. Yeah, there's 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 just a lot to process with this album going in. There's a lot to think about. I'd argue that it's very underrated. I think that it's rather unfairly maligned, but I do have a history of blindly going with underdogs. So I am I am I am willing to uh, uh, see my own my own bias there. There's nothing um, wrong with that, by the way. Yeah. You know, I remember there was an interview that Paul gave, the McCartney interview album with Paul Gambaccini, where he was just making um, a, a reference to one of the famous painters, maybe it was Picasso or something, how some of his fans like the lesser known works more or find it more interesting. So you could apply that to anything in the mm -hmm. art world, to any musician's work, you know. Sometimes I have a tendency when I have free time to listen to any of the solo Beatles works. I like to go to the ones that are the least popular or the ones mm -hmm. that get the least amount of airplay or attention. So yeah, 
I, I would definitely recommend this particular album for people to spend a lot of time investigating. No, uh, I, I randomly told one of my friends about um, you can't you, you can't fight lightning uh, by uh, Ringo and the album that came from and how it was related to Paul yada yada yada, you know smash cut to two weeks later he now says that stop and smell the roses is legitimately his favorite post Beatles album, uh, so I'm I'm so happy to have given someone that that little adventure. Uh, I mean this this is a man who knows Ram who knows. Uh, knows <laughs> a band on the run so uh yeah i thought there's that was quite funny. material on every solo beatles album there is there is and that is what we are here to plumb the depths of mm-hmm. though going back to a point you made i would argue that uh the sequencing on this album is not uh the effortless uh perfect way it normally is uh cer- certain albums Again, Ram, Band on the Run. To be fair, even even Wildlife and Red Rose Speedways do have a journey and a through line to them. And this one does feel a little scattershot, both in the the genre of songs that he goes with uh, in their production style, in the in the instrumentation and the arrangement. And that point you made about this, like you know, the first half kind of being about Linda and the second half being about Heather, that does kind of hold water, actually. And maybe it just points to the idea that you it really is hard to do an album where half of your songs are singing about your your uh, deceased ex-lover and your current new lover. Maybe sure. that's just not something you should do. Maybe he should have resolved Linda in a solo album separately and then introduce us to Heather with, you know, all singing, all dancing. Though, you know, the more dour parts of this album, that those those real low lows that we've really never had on a McCartney album before, which does just automatically make this album interesting and worthy of inclusion in, you know, the official canon. You know, those, those dour, dark moments do make the brighter moments you know, songs like Heather or Riding Into Jaipur, for me, feel all the more uh, exciting and joyful, you know? It's yeah. A, a contrast we don't normally get. And, you know, something else we said on on Talk More Talk, it, it's kind of ironic. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look at a song like Magic, which is all about the first time he met Linda. And a defined, weird song to include on this album, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but... it. it even though it's about a happy event that happened in Paul's life, it almost sounds like a sad song. Mm. (laughs) So if you look at it this way, it's it's almost like going from the depths of despair and then finally finding happiness in the end. But again, all the years that I enjoyed this album, I never thought of it that way. So (laughs) I was totally free of those thoughts Mm -hmm. uh, going into this album. I do think it's interesting, though, that there that there never has been the definitive, singular, iconic uh, Linda lament song, shall we say, in the same way that we got with um, Here Today and John. I guess I, w- I wonder if it's more significant that, say, John got one definitive song, but Linda gets, say, an album of covers that's drenched in her and then say half of driving rain as well. You know, well, it's, it's, you, you almost kind of have to think, even though Paul very often is reluctant to tell you everything about his songs, 
is that if there's a love song that he wrote while he was with Linda, chances are it was about Linda. Yes. I mean, my love is about Linda. You know, and I, I often think that even though, again, he, he never said anything about Linda specifically <clears throat> with regards to the song when he wrote Some Days, which he wrote like in an hour, very mm -hmm. quickly as an exercise that was around the time she was dying. And if you put it in that context, it's a very sad song. Oh, yeah. But you can you can you can feel like he was thinking about her throughout that song. Mm -hmm. We don't need anybody else to tell us what is real inside of us is love. And we know how it feels. You know, it's about that relationship and how strong it was. And, you know, if you think about what was going on in Paul's life with Linda about to die. But again, Paul doesn't readily admit that. Mm. Though, you know, when he does a song, when Linda is still alive, you know, a song like Some Days, you still get that 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 really uplifting bridge and you know, we don't need anybody else you mm. don't get any of that on driving rain folks you don't get any of this there are very few mccartney isms um we're going to get a lot of mccartney indulgence on this album and lengthy tracks so that is one paulism that i will give the album but we're not going to get uh medleys or two-parter tracks there's not going to be uh much of a tin pan alley uh, 1920s thing at all uh, th th there's very few orchestrations on this album there's there's no George Martin uh, he actually doesn't know any of the uh, players on this album going into it which is a very interesting concept indeed actually just speaking of the band uh, before we go into the songs uh, of course this is when uh, everyone but Brian Ray enters the picture is this officially when the modern McCartney era starts? I guess if, if you had to pick when, quote unquote, modern Paul starts, it is, it, it is you know, with Rusty in the band and with Abe. And Abe, yep. It's just that at the time, uh, Gabe Dixon played the keyboards on yes. this album. And um, he, he was someone that David Kahn brought along. David Kahn is a major player in all this. Yeah, yes. David Kahn produced the album. David Kahn suggested these musicians for Paul. Mm -hmm. um, and look, Rusty and Abe have been with Paul since the, the early 2000s. Since this album, he brought back Wicks for the touring. And then, yeah. you know, because Gabe didn't want to. Gabe was offered to be in Paul's band and he turned it down because he wanted to pursue his own solo career. He's really talented. In fact, um, on my uh, channel Ken Michaels Radio. I did an interview with Gabe, and I also oh. did one legs. So he tells you his whole story, and you even see him in front of a piano playing some of the stuff that's on Driving Rain um, and his own music too. So that's very cool. Really nice guy, by the way. But David Kahn is is such a, a an important person with with regard to this album and the last 20 plus years because he wouldn't have this particular band he's been touring with without David Kahn there. Mm -hmm. And Brian Ray, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was suggested by Abe to be in the band. Yes. So, yeah, it's everybody but Brian and well, later Wicks rejoins Paul, but it started with this band and because it's been a constant and Paul has been on the road almost every year, um, in the 2000s, minus COVID, you could call it, you know, the the newer era. 
I mean, if Paul had continued with, you know, Hamish and Robbie from mm. 1989 to today, it would, it would you could say that's the start of, of the new era. But this is a long time he's been with this current band. So, again, uh, apart from how you feel about Driving Rain and the production of it, and you got to give David Connell a lot of credit. No, David Connell for me is arguably one of the greatest draws. Uh, he really reminds me of uh, Julian Mendelssohn and his work on Off the Ground, in that it's in that it's very atypical McCartney production. It's something that I didn't really expect. It's quite ethereal. There's a lot of that sound that feels like it's almost a dream or it's not quite reality. There's there's a lot of fun sounds on this. Like there's lots of like sounds of like whirring tape loops and. Uh, vo uh, vocal traps uh, tracks just loops over and over again. Uh, he does the dark dower sound really well. Um, he gets some really interesting guitar tones on a McCartney album, mm -hmm. um, especially like um, uh, she's given up talking, for example. Yeah, okay. he's a, a very interesting part of, of this album for me, uh, and he's. I mean, I've I've dabbled in Memory Almost Full, which I know that he also produced as well. And I didn't particularly like it all that much the first time I listened to it. But the reason I'm going back into it with fervor pretty much hours after this conversation um, is because because of his work. I, re I, re I really do think he's a very good choice. Uh, I did find it a bit upsetting that his selection was just literally the MPL producers and big wigs just gave Paul a list of producers you know it's not like a an intimate personal connection paul had with anyone it was just a corporate business decision but it it worked out as far as i'm concerned but maybe not have worked out as far as the legacy is concerned and i'm not sure how many other times in the future paul will be just given lists like that maybe with something like new when he's got all those producers on it but um I guess my uh, listeners will have to wait and see for that. I, I know the guy who suggested David Kahn to Paul McCartney. Oh, but even still, so, hmm? who was it? Uh, Bill Porcelli. He used to work oh. at, uh, at MPL. And, um, you know, there, there have been times when people have suggested, like um, Elvis Costello to write with Paul was suggested, I think, by his manager. Paul's manager, manager. At, at the time, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, I think those were, were great suggestions. And David Kahn also produced part of Memory Almost Full. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I kind of wish she'd go back and work with him. But then I like when, when Paul chooses different people because they all get different sounds out of him. And I think collaborating is good. And then at the same time, I love when Paul produces himself. You know, McCartney 3, I love the production of so. I'm still waiting for the uh, Kanye West production, but uh, I'm pretty much the only person in that camp. I am very well aware of that. Don't worry, Kim. Uh-huh. Right. Starting us off today, we have one of, frankly, the most interesting McCartney openers we've had in a while. And how could it not be considering the subject matter? This is Lonely Road. Tried to get over you. I tried to find something new, but all I could ever do was fill my time with thoughts of 
tried to go somewhere old To search for my pot of gold But all I could ever hold inside course this song proudly takes its stance as a linda lament song uh, you know it, it directly addresses paul's emotive state after her dress he does not want to walk that lonely road uh, it's it's also him setting himself up for the heather mills relationship as well because if at the start of the album we're well aware that he doesn't want to walk the lonely road anymore and then he's on you know a road to jaipur now with his baby there is a you know it's almost like he's subliminally uh, easing us into the Heather Mills era, uh, whether whether he knows it or not. Mm. We also didn't get much of a straight up rocker on Flaming Pie. You know, we, we, we've got blues jammers, but that's not the same thing. And here, instead, we get one of the most badass, kick-ass, uh, <laughs> hard-ass McCartney rockers we have had in a while. It's a, it's an elemental force. Uh, it's probably the best opening track he's had since Flowers in the Dirt, maybe even earlier. I also, I, I, I love that opening bass line, that kind of stilted intro, that kind of doom, 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 doom. Because Paul is, you know, he's the guy who's known as boom, 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 boom. You think that, you know, you know, silly love songs and all these complicated bass lines and good night tonight and all this cool stuff. And here, I mean, I checked out the tab for it. He's literally just... Just, just got two strings next to each other. It's nothing complicated. Just doom, 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 doom. And to me, it's it 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 really symbolises and uh, evokes his kind of depressed, morose state. You know, rather than being at the piano, writing melodies away, he's just kind of there. Just doom, 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 doom. It's the perfect song to set up this album to set up his mental state. He is not happy. He he is. <laughs> very upset and he can, and he conveys it with an almost ram level of passion Ken we get some of the best McCartney screams that we're ever going to get from now on they might not ever be as good as this from this point moving forward yes the vocal is double tracked um, I did notice that on recent re-listens so it's not just one big vocal but it's way just do on it like he really gets low like that like that that sends a tingle up my fucking spine ken it is magical look this is a new millennium a new mccartney how did you think he did with this opening track phenomenal first yes. of all oh, say- oh, i'm so glad you like it ken i'm so happy uh one thing i will disagree with you with is flaming pie i think the world tonight was a great rocker absolutely great rocker and he does great vocals in that too um he does actually but i guess this is just so hard and heavy that i did feel like there was a bit of a a fun whiplash yeah i i really wish paul had done or if he still continues to tour which i believe he will i wish he would do the world tonight live i think it's a tremendous song to do live would really work well for him to an audience as well because he can see the world tonight in the crowd everyone would love it yeah 
Um, but I hadn't thought about what you said about the two notes in the, in the bass. I think Paul is extremely intuitive. He knows what to play on the bass. He knows when to play something that's more complicated. And there are times when he's not afraid to do something that's very simple if it works. So um, I love the buildup in, in, um, in Lonely Road. I, it's the, the chorus there, I, I hear your music and it's driving me wild, is so hypnotic. It's like, oh. how could I have been at a time when radio, top 40 radio played McCartney? How could a song like that not have been a hit in that time? And I always remember people when he was touring at the time and he was doing the song live, people holding up signs, I hear your music and it's driving me wild. It's such a great line right there. And he is also a master of doing this buildup like he does towards the end of Lonely Road. You know, don't want to walk that lonely road again, you know, and, and, and that throaty vocals yeah. that he does when he double tracks himself. It's fantastic, you know. It's why he's one of the greatest of, of rock vocalists. But it's a, a great opening track. And in many ways, and I'm probably going to repeat this a few times, there are similarities <laughs> between Driving Rain and Press to Play. I do kind of equate okay. um, Only Road with Stranglehold, good opening rocker right there, in a way that I also feel like the very experimental stuff is the third track of each album, whether it's um, she's given up talking or talk more talk. You know, it's all the oh. electric. So there's similarities in both albums. And um, yeah. <laughs> Folks, you heard it here first. The very first time where Ken has thought more about an album and got deeper than me for once. Oh my gosh. Ken's got his own conspiracies about, about these albums. Uh, they've both got black and white covers as well. So uh, you, you, you can definitely make, make, make something there. But yeah, Lonely Road, an incredible tune. Um, it's a great uh, contrast uh, with something like Here Today, for, for example. This is the first thing we're hearing about each party. And uh, Paul was quite calm and collected on Here Today. And here he's just raucous and rage-filled and all over the place. And I really feel like he just, conveys that so brilliantly uh, his vocals there are among the best oh no he just comes out in the new millennium saying oh by the way i'm still the best at this don't worry kids when you when you sing and i hear your music and it's driving me wild again and then the Whoa! oh my god <laughs> <laughs> he never see unfortunately the video lets this song down and i'm gonna say this I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this. He's never done it live nearly as well as the album. And it probably has something to do with the fact that it's double tracked uh, and he hadn't worked something out with the band, maybe. Like maybe he's free to do the, and they can do the, again, just the, the kind of flat a bit. But Paul Solo does it all by himself. And I mean, I'll get into this on uh, Back in the US with Dylan CV in a, in a, uh, in a few weeks, but... Let's bring on. If you think about it, first of all, Abe Laboreal Jr. is a really good singer. I don't know. Oh, you know. my God. Yeah. And yeah. He does great harmony work with Paul, but I don't necessarily hear them as, as, as being, you know, that gutsy, throaty vocal from Abe. And the others can sing harmony with Paul, but they don't have that kind of a voice, that very rough, edgy voice like that. And then... Uh, Lonely Road towards the end, he's doing all that ad-libbing. 
which is really cool. Don't want to walk that lonely road, you know. You can see the footage of him in the studio as he's doing it. It's so it's it's so expressive. I don't want to. <laughs> I love I don't, it. Look, I, just, I, I don't want to do it. It's all right. Okay. Let's, let's, let's move on. <laughs> In second place, we have the first single from this album. Also, our first piano tune. This is From a Lover to a Friend. This album kicked off with a hard rocket, and of course, Paul always does about face here and does a 180. So we're going to go straight to a soft ballad. And this, to this day, is actually my only bit of driving rain vinyl. Actually, it's hard to get the album on, but this, but this single uh, with freedom on the B side is quite common. So I've actually heard this one for quite a while. I wasn't too impressed at first, but it has certainly had time to win me over, and it has done so. Um, I still consider it kind of mid-tier McCartley balladry. Uh, I totally adore the intent of the song. I love what McCartney's saying in the lyrics and the sentiment of it all. Just the execution could have a little more oomph to it. Like I, you know, I sing along to it. I can hum along to it. I can sing it to myself and remember it after I've heard it. But it, it, it hasn't particularly resonated I think the melody turns me off a bit. Like 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 that ethereal intro and all that echoey vocalization and, and that distortion. Uh that was that was really fun. But then it kind of goes into some been there done that McCartney piano chords and I don't know. I felt the are vocal was Are you talking about the, the single mixed? Because I'm very used to the album mix. Oh no, I'm talking about the album mix uh, okay. in, in entirely here. I don't know. This is one of those mediocre ones where I don't know whether I think do I do, do I think it's a good bad one or a bad good one. Uh, I'm not too sure. There's just not a lot of emotion in it, especially compared to the last song. I feel like this is a bit of a, a slamming on the brakes that we didn't need. I don't know. The production's good. I love what David Kahn does on this. You know, new millennium, new sound. Uh, it's very unlike a lot of what we've heard from Paul before. Uh, Paul's vocals quite fun on this one. You know, the, 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 you know, whoa, 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 how can I walk if I can't find a way? You know, like you just do all that fun little jazzy vamping that we know he can do so But it's still, after all of that, I can, I, you know, I can think of all of that off the top of the head. Still hasn't left much of an impression on me. 
unfortunately. Look, I think the best question would be, is this the best opening single for this album, Ken? Well, first of all, you're dealing with a time when Top 40 Radio wasn't playing Paul anyway. So no matter <laughs> who it was, we, we've talked about this before. It wouldn't matter yeah, yeah. what he put out there. If he put out Maybe I'm Amazed for the first time in 2001, it wouldn't have been a hit, you know? Nothing against the song. You know, I love the song and it's a classic and everything, but I'm just talking about the way that radio operates, certainly in the United States. You know, for Paul to have any success at all, he'd have to find some kind of radio format that embraces his music. And uh, the only ones that were playing him, once you're talking about from the 90s on up, would have been like adult contemporary stations. Mm -hmm. And he had some success in that format. Uh, it's very easy for me to just go into this whole conversation about radio, which is very complicated, but it explains why certain records sell and why certain records don't. But, you know, when you talk about should have been singles, which is something that I like to get into in all my different podcast shows, once you reach a certain age, top 40 radio is not going to play you no matter how good the music is, no matter how big an artist you are, it doesn't matter, you know. But Donna could put out something brand new right now and she was the biggest female artist for, you know, a couple of decades there and it wouldn't matter. U2 was the biggest band for several decades there. It doesn't matter what they release as singles now. That format's not going to play you if you're talking about a big single on the singles charts. Your only hope is to find airplay in other formats, like I said, adult contemporary or something like that. But the reason why this song became a single apparently... You know, Paul did ask Ringo what he what songs he liked on the album. And oh no, no! <laughs> to a friend, that's the one he picked. So Paul, <laughs> went with it. Well, that's the only reason why. But um, well, you know, it's a, it could work on adult contemporary, soft adult contemporary radio. Um, and I like most of this song. I I don't like it entirely because I have a slight problem with it. The great thing about the song is the hook of the chorus. Once that's in your head, it's stuck in there. I like the lyrics of the song a lot. I disagree with you. I think he's really feeling the loss of, of Linda when he sings Let Me Love Again. Um, I hear that in his voice. The only problem I have with it is, is that part where he's kind of ad-libbing, sort of. You know, how can I walk when I can't find oh, a way? Oh, no, that's the best bit. That's the best bit. No, it's, I have no problem with the lyrics, at all it's just sometimes i feel like it's losing its structure here in the song it's like there's an extra bar or they don't know when to to come back to the song it's i kind of like that dissonance that's fun for me you know what yeah, I mean? yeah. it's kind of weird in that respect it's mm. almost like is this the way he was really directing the song to be or it was a mistake and he left it in and it's cool that way i don't know but uh, I love the bass line towards the end. Paul has this habit of mixing up his bass really hot on certain ballads. Like, um, I think it's on I Don't Know. He does that too. Yes. And and it's, it's just perfect. <laughs> it's not very complicated, but it just fits the song. And um, I like what he, what he played on the bass towards the end of From a Lover to a Friend. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, Good song. I like it a lot. It's just that that middle part there where I sometimes have a problem. And since uh, I have a tendency to not pay attention to the lyrics initially, 
uh, and I'm listening constantly to the songs over and over again. It took me years before I discovered he, he used the word dilemma. I didn't know what the hell he was singing. <laughs> I'm in a dilemma. I would never know he was saying dilemma in the song. This sounds like he's mumbling the word. But uh, I still like the song a lot. I just don't think it's perfect the way it is. But you like that aspect of it when it's kind of loose the way it is. Yeah, I'd say that's when it's at its best because it's not uh, really that 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 connected to the rest of the track. Uh, it's also interesting that this is probably one of the last real uh, McCartney pushes like for uh, a lead single ballad until something like I don't know, but th- that that was kind of twinned with "Come On to Me." Uh, but it also wasn't. Oh no, no. Uh, uh, what was "Find My Way" called? It wasn't called a single, was it? What was it? What was it? Like a showcase song, or something like that. From from Edith Station. What are you talking about? No, certain, no, no. From McCartney Three. Find Find My Way. Was it called like a highlight track or a, a promo? Yeah, it's not really. A, yeah, it's um, what you're pushing to radio for the mm. most part, without caring yeah. about you know how it charts or anything. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting prospect in the song, you know, Let Me Love Again. Um, it's bold for him to put it this early up in the album. Again, it lends a certain credence towards the idea that there's a certain disconnect with the kind of Linda and Heather aspects of this album. Like maybe ending a Linda-focused album with the question of let me love again and letting us ponder on it for three years or two years and then and then doing an album that opens with, you know, Heather or something like that. Maybe that would uh, feel a lot more cohesive. But we don't have time to discuss that, Ken, because we're going to go on to yep. something that really seals the deal in terms of the kind of tone and energy that McCann is going to be going with for this album, at least for this section. Uh, this is She's Given Up Talking. She given up talking, don't say that. Even in the classroom, not a dicky bird. Unlike other children, she's seen and never heard. She given up talking, don't say Onto another song that I'm more or less 50 50 with. Not the regular 50 50, though. It's not whether I think it's, you know, good or bad. It's whether I think it's great or excellent. Uh, this, is a, this is a step up from the last song for me. Uh, we've got some more of that off kilter, slightly mysterious 
David Kahn production at the start, which I love. Then it goes into an acoustic-y, almost Flaming Pie-esque, or maybe post-Flaming Pie-esque acoustic bit of uh, strumming. And I was being beguiled by this track. And then it moves into this very tinny, otherworldly electric guitar. And then there's a big old crash. And then the song is fully metamorphosed into this fully dark, atmospheric, imposing McCartney, I don't know, rocker, bluser, whatever it is, it's just intimidating and it's effective. And it's 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 Maccabee heavy. Uh, the, I, I mentioned the guitar tone earlier. It's utterly divine. Uh, Abe's cymbals that come crashing in are some of the best crashing we've had since, like, Don't Let Me Down. Um, everything about it is just fantastic. All around tip-top stuff. Okay, Ken, take the floor. What is your take on She's Given Up Talking? Don't give up talking on this one. This is one <laughs> I love a lot. I mm. thought it was very weird the first time that I heard it. Yes. But um, kind of like Talk More Talk, it has that electronic drum sound um you know heavy drums and everything and his voice is filtered you know and part of the song and i love all the different sounds here i just think it has a very modern sound to it and um very kind of dark sound it's it's um it's it's different for him Although, like I said, once in a while he ventures into this very modern sound and he gets someone who's a, a modern producer like like Hugh Padgham at the time or, or David Kahn. And I, I like when he takes a step in that direction. The thing that I found, which I, I, I bring up a lot uh, in, in my podcast shows, is that there are a lot of McCartney fans out there that don't like when he does this, yeah. that want the more traditional sound. And, you know, they look at when you uh, work with, um, I hate to say, flavor of the month producers, you're, you're trying to strive for having a hit record and trying to sound relevant. I think this is part of who Paul is. He likes to work with different people and likes to stretch a little bit and get different sounds and draw something out of himself that he may not do if he did everything himself and produced himself. So you will find that there are a lot of McCartney fans out there that that don't want this kind of thing. And um, as someone who, and I wish I had more time to go online and watch every YouTube countdown that people have been doing of their favorite McCartney albums, but chances <laughs> are the ones that place Press to Play near the bottom also place Driving Rain in the same category. And I think this is part of the reason. Although overall, Driving Rain you know, it has a lot of modern sounds to it, like this, like this song and and uh, spinning on an axis is like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's still got a very raw quality to it. No, this is this is you know, it's not only the rawness we got on say something like around, but it definitely leans towards something like that. Um, just before we press on to the next song, uh, I just wanted to point out that there's an infamous lyric in the next song we're going to talk about, which is one, two, three, four, five, let's go for a drive. Uh, a lyric that I am utterly uh, smitten with and I think it's quite cute and adorable and fun. Um, in this song we have, but when she comes home, it's a yappy yap yap. That for me is far more worthy of ridicule than one, two, three, four, five, let's go for a drive. Uh, but 
that's just Paul found the whole story. He knew of a friend whose daughter went to school and wouldn't talk while she was in school. And I think the whole part about when she comes home, then she doesn't stop talking. That I think he invented himself. But I think he liked that whole, that particular storyline. I thought you were going to bring up Not a Dickie Bird. Uh, no, not a Dickie Bird. It sounds silly as well. Not a Dickie Bird. Like the way he d- he does a little bit of like <laughs> warble on, on Dickie Bird is funny. Um, like, you know, there's a lot of people that don't know what that means. And Paul has a habit of like dustbin lid. He puts in these yeah. expressions. It that, literally is the dustbin lid line of this of this album. That's so funny. <laughs> Dicky Bird, because I, I looked it up because I had forgotten. Um, it actually means that um, nothing. It actually means a small sound or thing. It's a Cockney slang expression. Um, even in the classroom, not a Dicky Bird. She's not there. She's nothing. You yeah. know, she's not even relevant. You know, that's what it means. So Paul sticks in these these expressions every now and then. People make fun of him, and they don't know what it means. Um, yeah, if if, Len, if, 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 if 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 Lennon threw in Dickie Bird, everyone would be up in arms as uh, for, yeah for such a, a genius move. I mean, for me, just before we go on, um, the idea of who the person that had given up talking was, I always assumed it was Paul himself, or maybe one of his daughters post the no. death of 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 linda but of course that is the actual story but um you know the idea of someone giving up talking after something sad has happened certainly has certain parallels with his own life as well uh, in fourth place we have the title track uh nothing clever here it's just called driving rain this song this is easily my go-to track for this album i think it's one of the most fun tracks mccartney's ever written it's uh, an unabashed unashamedly cheery song uh, it's 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 the happiest thing on the entire album uh, it never fails to put a smile on my face but let's address the elephant in the room do you dislike the whole one two three four five Let's go for a drive thing. Is is that is that your stinker line for this album, or is that just something you chuckle at as he sings it? I've always liked this song from the very beginning. It's very catchy. I love um, S. 
you know, the the chord progressions, the song goes in a different direction than you expect it to, but it's still extremely melodic. I don't mind one, two, three, four, five, and I, I brought this up at all my podcast shows. It's like all together now. It's just all together now again. Same thing. So people who defend all together now and then don't like driving rain, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all to me. And yeah. then you hear, oh, but all together now was a children's song, so it works. It works in this context. It's just a fun song. That's all that it is, you know. You get an astounding vocal performance from from Paul here. He does he does a real range here. He does high and low. Uh, you get some of that great squelchy muted David Kahn percussion, uh, and then Abe kicks off with an incredible snare. Da, 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 and like one, two, three, you just into it straight away. It kicks things off so perfectly. This is, of course, referring to when Paul and Linda would go and drive and get lost together. He really gives promise to the line, let's go back again. Uh, maybe not just to a destination, but maybe back to a time. It's a very tragic line. Uh, it should also be pointed out that Tom Waits and his wife did the exact same thing, and that was documented in the 2011 song, Get Lost. So there's a, a nice pairing there. Because also, uh, Tom Waits did, did a song about junk items called uh, Soldier's Things, and Elvis Costello did a medley of junk and Soldier's Things. So I'm always on, on, I'm always on the lookout for Tom Waits and McCartney songs for Elvis Costello to do as a double. Uh, also, uh, shout out to uh, Gabe Dixon's uh, electric piano on this song as well. Yeah, um, I know Paul's talked about early on in the relationship with Linda, how they would just go for a ride anywhere and get lost. But did he ever specifically mention Linda in this context for, for this particular song? It makes sense, you know, but I usually go by whatever the author of the song has to say. So I don't remember him saying that about Driving Rain. That's totally my own in, in inference, I will admit. Uh, I, I don't believe the author is the final uh, author on their, on their own work, I guess. Uh, well, you know. I usually... And I don't think McCartney's the most reliable narrator of, of, of his own life and events either. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically saying I'm, I'm clever. I'm clever. <laughs> we should do a separate show on that. Yeah. Well, I mean... There's, um, I mean, the go-to one is the uh, the uh, Jimi Hendrix story, isn't it? About and, and that how that didn't happen at all, or the or the or the dates don't line up at all. But it's now a part of history. Anyway, we've got a contender for the shortest Paul McCartney title ever, with three letters and a space. We have, I do. Oh no, I guess Jet. If we're taking spaces into account, yeah, Jet would be shorter. Uh, this is I Do. If you only knew How much it meant To me You'd understand And I would feel Your love was true This is all I is all I need This is all I long for I do Just remember 
Ken, this is another song that I mostly skip through on my initial run-throughs of the album. Um, but when I do listen to the album in full, uncompromisingly, I do get quite a lot out of this track. Uh, I don't consider it top 50, top 100, but as a fully formed song, it still reliably has a, a quality to it. Um, for example, I've I catch myself singing this one a lot as well. It's it definitely left some residue on me. Uh, it's a clear-cut uh, love song. I'm not sure whether this one is about Heather or Linda. Uh, Dino, I'm not sure actually. Uh, yeah. He hasn't, he hasn't commented about it, so... You know, we're coming more towards a midpoint in the album. There could be a, a blurring here, certainly. Yeah, for me, though, that uh, I, I I just love the kind of almost like quasi-medieval Renaissance production to it. It just feels very, you know... Like when, like when, like when, when I say classical, I mean classical in the sense that you know someone like Mozart literally could have done something like this. It feels very old school. It's Paul really going back and plumbing the depths of more classical themes. He's definitely drawing upon a lot of the classical stuff that he was doing at that point. It feels very fully formed, very fun. But again, I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to call it one of my favourites. I do like that lyric, though. Um, just remember this, and for a time it's through, and never more will there be days for me and you. You know, it's, it's not hard to see what's on his mind in this period. Also, the antiquated use of nevermore has to be uh, uh, an uh, Edgar Allan Poe reference. I think that that's just Paul doing a, li- a little bit of flexing there. The, or- the orchestrations, though, I was reminded of top-tier George Martin Beatle-esque style orchestration, stuff like Abbey Road, Tug of War, Pipes of Peace, Flaming Pie. Uh, I imagined it must have been one of the Martins, but it's just David Kahn doing orchestral samples. It's not even like a, a, a fresh uh, session was booked or, any, or anything. I'm guessing it's, it's just David, David Kahn with a synth and a bunch of plugins. And it sounds absolutely beautiful, you know. It's 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 as divine as something like "Through Our Love." Um, oh, you also get church bells, which immediately made made me think of uh, English tea as well. There's a uh, there's a, a church bell thing McCartney was doing in the early two thousands. I don't know what that was about. Well, I like this song a lot, although it is overly simplistic in its lyrics but that doesn't bother me at all. Very simple melody. But again, Paul doesn't mind if simple works. Mm-hmm. And it's a song that stays in your head. I wouldn't call it his greatest love song. I wouldn't even call it anywhere in his top 20, mm-hmm. you know, love songs, because he's done so many incredible love songs. Um, but I do love the melody. And I do like the arrangement, like you said, the orchestrations on there from David Kahn really accent the song where it's needed and i love his vocals on it uh, he does that famous this. yeah yeah you know towards the end he sings the song an octave higher you know for a build-up you know i i love when paul does that with his vocals um it's nice it's um it's kind of like uh i wouldn't put it anywhere in the in 
to me through our love is top tier McCartney. Yeah. It's like it, no, it, it reminded me of it. It's more like so bad, which to me is extremely simple. Incredible baseline. In <laughs> oh, girlfriend, song, yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, and melody, it's very simple, but it works. Mm. So I do is very much in that vein for me. I love the production on it. You know, there's so many reasons to like music. And, you know, as someone who lyrics never came first for me, it's always been about melody first and lyrics that work as long as they're good enough to fit the melody. I like the song, but if the lyrics are great, it makes the song even better. McCartney is the master of melody and I love his arrangements. And, you know, I, I could say that about most of the songs throughout his entire career. Um, and then there are those moments when he writes really great lyrics. But I do is not one of them, but it, it, whatever he writes for the song works, you know. On to our next track. And we have the first of a couple of uh, what I like to think is a, an early solo era throwback or a, a song that at least reminds me of that era. We have Tiny Bubble. This is a song that I should have disliked or I should have found a little bit goofy. But golly gee, do I have a soft spot for Tiny Bubble. I mean, how could you not feel overprotective over a Tiny Bubble, for fuck's sake? I mean, after a completely earnest and sincere I do, this was the perfect time to drop a silly, enjoyable, throwaway track a la, like, On The Way or Sweetest Little Show. And that is exactly what we get here. Tiny Bowl is a fun, funky little rocker that adds some much-needed levity to the album. Uh, Gabe Dixon really gets to stretch his legs here. We think all all those fun little flourishes here. Um, I also kind of got reminded of a bit a, a, a bit of McCartney one, especially at the start. Um, you know, this is definitely something uh, that is harking back to a simpler time especially we've got all these big songs on this album this this had that kind of homegrown McCartney feel to me even though it still was produced very solidly um, the guitar as well that, that that fuzzy growl and the groovy way he plays it is is a dead ringer for that kind of period and I, I get a lot of nostalgia out of that um, lyrically the song's quite fun as well 
it's, it's on, like there's a line in in the middle eight that has a kind of low tech amateur charm to it. Um, you can't imagine just what I've been going through. I wouldn't wish it on a soul, much less on you. And it it is so stilted, Ken. I don't know. Like if anyone else had sung it, I think it would have completely fallen flat. But Paul just kind of. You know the way a buffalo herd will just push through a river, uh, uh-huh. no, matter, no matter how many of them get eaten by crocodiles or drown. Th- th- this melody's like he's like a, that herd of buffalo, like all right, much less on a soul, much less on you. Like push it through, get to the next part of the song, because then when we get to that next part of the song, we get that satisfying. Well, remember when my heart was free, so good laugh, so good we. That is. That is peak, Paul. That's so. That's so fun. That part goes in a, a direction musically or, or or melodically that I wouldn't expect it to. Yeah, there's a freeness, a freedom to it that I like a lot. Now, "Tiny Bubble" is one of those songs where, again, if this was the '70s or even the '80s, I would cho- I would choose it as a single. It's yeah. just not that catchy, you know. The the chorus, "All the world's a tiny bubble," which a lot of people pointed out. I'm surprised you didn't bring it up. Melodically is a is a bit like piggies. Oh my god! Okay, folks, uh, cut to a moment where we play uh, a bit of piggies and a bit of tiny bubble. Uh, we'll be back after these messages. Oh my gosh, Ken! I never believe I never would have realised. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, no, uh, I, I I never did notice that. It's a little bit like it. It's not totally like it, but. Well, I mean, you know, we, we also have Paul doing an, uh, an Indian sound on this album as well. George was in ill health at this time. Maybe subconsciously George is on his mind and coming through on this album. Mm. Uh, that is my armchair psychology. We've got some great McCartney nonsense lyricism here. A nice evocative imagery. All the world's a tiny bubble floating inside. And then because he can't say, like, he... like. This is where, if he was in any other song, he would make it about love, but he can't. There's no way to make it about love. So he goes, floating inside the truth. I was like, ooh. (laughs) That's a fun McCartney lyric. That's a bit more generic 60s hippie than he's been for a while. And I liked that kind of throwback. Uh, Gabe on the Hammond organ, uh, great throwback feel. Those peppy little bursts are great. Uh, Overall, another another tip-top song. I think, though, it's interesting you said that it sounds like it could have been like on the first McCartney album. Hmm. It fits more McCartney, too. Much more modern sounding, definitely. McCartney 1.5, otherwise known as Wings at the Speed of Sound. <laughs> or uh, Venus and Mars. from uh, bogey music, <laughs> I think. Oh, yeah, I definitely like that more than bogey music, even though bogey music, again, has a charm that I, th- I, th- I feel like most people definitely should take the time to see. Um, next up, we have a song that you'd think would be part of the Heather cadre of tunes based on its lyricism uh, and its placement on the album. But no, this is magic. Must If I hadn't stopped you 
to say this this is a song that i know i'm never going to listen to again unless i'm listening to this album in full i feel like this is another one of those times where everyone likes a song and i don't um i mean i'm not like saying people are like linda blind because like you know just you know just because this song's about linda it's automatically amazing uh, i'm not saying people are feeling that i'm just saying there's something about this song that i'm missing that other people you know, great for them, can connect with. For me, a song that is about him remembering about the first time he met Linda should be an all-time great, maybe I'm amazed, kick-ass, all-time top 20 McCartney song. And then when I got this, I was just a bit let down. It feels like some of those big emotional balance from the 80s that fell flat for me like however absurd or once upon a long ago could be part of my own tin ear again but i don't know there's just nothing really that complex the melody is quite bland like you know just just that um, da, 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 just kind of kind of gets annoying uh, for me, apart from sort of wishing that the song would do something a little bit different, the only the, the only bit I do like is when it goes into that. Oh, uh, da, 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 da. and and to me that feels like um, I owe it all to you from from off the ground. It, it definitely you know you know the ancient temples. It it it, it has that 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 same kind of feel to it. Uh, once I heard it, I couldn't unhear it. But yeah, this is the only song on the first 75% of the album that I just groan whenever it comes on. Ken, are, are, are you partial to this abracadabra? <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. <laughs> I made Ken laugh, folks. I, mean, I understand exactly what you're saying. I mean, you could have turned this song around and made it seem like the first time I met Linda, the greatest moment of my life. I had the greatest years, in the, but it does sound very, um, just in the tone and in the melody and the way he delivers it, it's kind of maudlin because he's he's aware of the fact that she's not here. She but, almost seems doomed to die in the song, if you know what I mean. It, it, it seems like he's all pointing towards this. There's, there's no point of hope. It's, it's just a bit, ugh. ugh. Well, there's... there's a lot of different ways of looking at life and you know some people are critical of paul because he's always so mr positive and thumbs up all the time and uh not on know. this album ken not on this album <laughs> and yet you know some of the most famous songs that paul has written are very sad songs you know fortunately the next song's not a sad song ken because this is to put it frankly this is the one i've been most excited to talk about on this episode it's a little song called Your Way.
so let it stay You gave me love You gave me what I wanted You gave me love your way Ken, I've been listening to this song non-stop like crazy for the last few weeks, and it did not take me long to realise why. Basically, this is the second part of the ultimate sub-genre of McCartney songs that kind of make me uh, you know, uh, get reminiscent and nostalgic about his earlier career. I felt stuff about McCartney 1 earlier on, and now for this, I'm getting wildlife vibes, because your way, for all intents and purposes, is bit bop if it went ahead and got itself finished you know you, you know we all know that mccartney line you know oh what do you think about bit bop? oh it'll it'll be nice when it's finished like you know that line about short skirts and stuff like that this to me is just bit bop finished it's got that old uh kind of uh, crawdaddy, jangly guitar tone that swampy jaunty atmosphere but it's fully formed with a complete beginning, middle and end with a touching, equally fully formed lyric. And considering the fact that, that I already like Bit Bop and I'm a Bit Bop apologist, then you can bet your ass that I love this one just as much, if not more so. Uh, I, I love McCartney nostalgia. He's done it very well here. And even if he wasn't doing that, the whole premise is so pure and wholesome it just instantly won me over. I don't know who it's about. Is it Linda? Is it Heather? Again, uh, it doesn't matter either way, really, because it's an adorable tune either way. Uh, you know, you gave me love. You gave me what I wanted. You gave me love your way. That's just something that I cannot help but get teary-eyed at, Ken. What are your thoughts, my friend? I understand everything you're saying there, and in many ways I agree with you. Never thought of it as Bip Bop being finished, but it has that vibe of the country finger picking style. Very, I, I immediately thought of Heart of the Country. Okay, interesting. Then again, Country Dreamer, those songs, that particular early 70s period when Paul's doing that finger picking style mm-hmm. um, and, and in a country vein. And it really works and it's complete and it's got that twangy guitar sound on it to make it more of a country sound. And I like it a lot. You know, it, it could have fit easily in those early 70s McCartney albums. So I hear what you're saying. Every now and then there's going to be a song that's a throwback or a song that reminds you of a style that he did a while, a while ago. Like uh, When Winter Comes. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as people heard that, oh, it's the old Paul, you know, and um you know, that's that's going to happen with someone like him who has a million ideas bouncing around all the time. And he'll do things that he did before in the past and he'll create new sounds and, and hopefully songs that are different from what he's done before. So, yeah, it's it's very simple for him to fall back and do something like like your way. I mean, the fact that this is a song where he says you gave me love rather than you give me love is just automatically the most 
uh, endearingly tragic thing ever. Um, it's it's the ultimate uh, capstone on the Linda love song tapestry, I guess, you know. We had two of us through to maybe my maid's long-haired lady, my love, then like middle age with distractions and we got married. And then you have the the the, the flaming pie songs with her dying and then you've got the post-death stuff here. Uh, it's an impossibly in-depth catalogue of, of a single love. And for me, Your Way is an irremovable part of that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's impossible. It's impossible for me not to be emotive over a song like this. And it certainly had its way with me. And better yet, it's even got a deep cut McCartney reference. Um, I've seen it shining from the furthest stars like Venus, saw it on the way to Mars. Mm. How could you not, like, the, the, like, every McCartney fan must just going, ooh, just creaming over that one. I mean, uh. look, look, Ken, you know I like to overthink things, but how can this not be a reference to... Venus and Mars. Paul is Mars. Linda is Venus. This is a thing that's been going since 1975. He's referencing it. It's fun. There's nothing bad to say about it. Well, totally agree with you. No, I, once you put the Venus and Mars reference in there, yes, I would think that too. For our next song, do not worry about the title. It's not about a ballet performance to do with Germany, Italy, or Japan in the 40s. This is spinning on an axis. <laughs> World spinning round to the next revolution. Sun going down, going to rise up again. Watch the sun go down with some sorrow But now I know it's gonna come back tomorrow Ain't no reason it has to do that It's the season of the culture back Spinning on the axis Spinning on the axis Staring in the face of time and space Spinning on the axis Sun going down, gonna rise up again. <laughs> Folks who will get the uh, video feed will be able to watch Ken uh, get the joke in real time. You'll see his face go from smiling to. <laughs> okay, spinning on axis. This is another one where it's just a straight up win for the album. It's another example of uncomplicated McCartney tunes from this period uh, that that have a, uh, an effortless effect to them. It's a delightfully hypnotic song. It's got a great concept that offers up some great imagery. Uh, we get a smidge of Mad Professor McCartney. Uh, Paul, sometimes he can get a groove and. You know, get every last drop of blood out of it, and he does that here. Uh, some call it indulgence. I will call a song later on this album indulgence. Here, I will call it a singular vision, and it's it, it, it's a vision that I'm certainly leaning towards. This song, this this song is groovy, it's funky, but yeah, kind of dark and foreboding. Uh, I guess 
it, it, it's more down to taste than argument than a lot of the other songs on the album. If you like the riff, if you like, if if you like that, you're gonna love this song. If you don't like it, you're not gonna like this song. Uh, but at least you get some nice McCartney lyricism for me to overanalyze. Uh, world spinning round to the next revolution, sun going down, gonna rise up again. Uh, I mean, how can you not think about the Beatles song Revolution when he starts singing about stuff like that? Is he talking about actual revolutions in the real world? Is he talking about the next political revolution or technological revolution? Uh, you know, you can certainly press all of that. But then, but then you've just got the actual on the face of it interpretation, which is just he's literally singing about the world itself i mean we, we were spinning on an axis just a moment and now the world is still spinning round. there is a definite progression of time in the middle of this album death of linda at the start a progression of time time passing is a big theme in the middle of the album heather at the end things are definitely being set up here oh and last of all great guitar sound thank you david Carr. Yeah, sounds great Ken, Sometimes please I, tell me why you agree with me. I think you think way too much. <laughs> oh, Ken, it wouldn't be an episode without me getting you to say that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For some reason, when I, when he's talking about revolution, I'm thinking more of uh, you know Bob Marley and the Whalers kind of going to rise up and sing. You know, it's not like any time Paul uses the word revolution, he's thinking about the Beatles song. Sometimes there's a danger, I think, that, that Beatles fans have and that, you know, there are some people who read into John's lyrics and think this song is about Paul. Danger is my middle name, Ken. Come on. <laughs> if the word yesterday is in the lyrics, it's about Paul. <laughs> but um, Spinning on an Axis is one of my favorite tracks on this entire album. And yes. again, here's, here's a case of something that's different for Paul to do. It's almost kind of rapish in a way, in that it's not this melodic song and coming from someone whose greatest strength is his melodies. Certainly one of them. Um, and I love the whole sound of it. I love that that riff that you mentioned, which is going on throughout the entire song and it's building all around it. And most of all, I love his vocals on there. And he does a lot of ad-libbing and he sings the next in revolution. Yeah. And he's playing around with his voice. And there is a feeling that you get sometimes with this album that it's. How did I describe it? And there's another show where it's, it's like it's good enough the way it is. It's polished enough without being polished. Mm -hmm. it, it's there's a spontaneity that you feel that it may not be the most perfect um, take of a certain song, but it's good enough. And if you were in the studio with this band, this is what it would sound like. And when Paul does this stuff with his vocals, which I wish he would do more of, just play around with it and just sing whatever he feels like ad-libbing in his head, I wish he'd do more of that. Um, I wish he'd do more of it on this song, <laughs> as much as I like what he already gave us. I wish there was more of it. Um, but that's, um, you know, one of the biggest reasons I love to listen to Paul is his voice. No, like Paul did spoil us on Monkberry Moon Delight, both with incredible vocal performances and uh, 
healthy heap of ad-libbing as well. Just all that, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that certainly set the standard for the future. But yeah, Ken, I'm so I'm so glad you enjoyed the song. Uh, it was the one that I felt was the most easy to enjoy on the album. Um, you know, it's got that harder rocking edge without going over the top. I've, I'm always a sucker for some falsetto vamping, you know, that... Just you know him doing all of that. How you know? I totally agree. How can you not just fall in love with that? Yeah. Um, it's another song that has a modern sound to it, which I think a lot of his, some of his fans, uh, don't really care for. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. People said that about temporary sec- secretary as well, and he's still making music in in this day and age. So you know, we can say what we, we can say what we want. He's still going to carry on. Mm-hmm. Um, Onto the following song now, and shockingly, Ken, we have another rocker. We, you know, I, I always like to point out when we have a majority of rock tracks on the McCartney album, and regardless of what you think about Driving Rain, if you're someone who says, McCartney doesn't do enough rockers, then surely you should lean towards Driving Rain, because we get a lot of them here. We have About You. Oh, one, two, three. to this album for a couple of months now so not everything is fully set in stone I can totally imagine Ken in literally three days me going oh god that thing I said to Ken is totally not how I feel anymore it happens every time and this is one of those songs that I always forget about in the best possible way in the sense that it's not a standout there's a lot of songs there's 16 tracks an hour and seven minutes of music and so it kind of gets lost amongst the shuffle but because I mostly listen to Driving Rain in the context of listening to it in full, especially around now, mm. it's one of those songs where I, I get to it and I go, oh, it's this song. Oh, okay. And I get to really kind of enjoy it, not fresh, not fully fresh, but I get to enjoy it 20% all all over again for the, for the very first time. This is some harder edge rock again. It kicks a surprising amount of ass. It is filler. But it's delicious filler. It's like something found inside of a donut. You know, uh, no one complains about the jam. You know, this is just the jam of this album. Without sounding like I'm being lazy, there's generally not too much complicated discussion around this song. I always throw shade at the Paul White in his sleep accusation, but certain arguments could be made, especially with this generic ass melody. 
there's a little bit of keyboard present throughout the entire song that I do kind of like. The solo about halfway through is rather sweet. Um, but this is one of those songs where I'm like, oh, this is just the band getting to know each other in the studio kind of thing. They're just kind of, you know, they're just throwing something out there, seeing how the other receives it, seeing what happens. Um, this is a song for me that if this was just a bonus track on an archive release of Driving Rain in an alternative universe, I would I, I would totally be excited to hear it. I'd be interested, but I'd understand why it wasn't on the album. Um, also, interestingly, it's the shortest song at 2 minutes 54. Ken? Um, Tell I, me about you thoughts on about you. <laughs> I, I love I love uh, about you. To me, it had a back to the egg kind of vibe to it. It's very edgy. Oh, in yeah, a way. that makes sense. With the vocals, yeah. and it's definitely about Heather. You know, you give me power to get out of bed. I love Paul's vocals throughout. The only thing to me it's lacking is it could have used the middle eight something to bridge the verses together. Yeah. That solo in the middle, which I do like. I love the keyboard sound that you get from from Gabe on there. I like it a lot. It's strong just by itself, but I wish it would have been just a little bit more developed. Otherwise, everything else about the song I like. I like the melody behind it. I love the playing. This is a full band sound, and it would have been a, a pretty good song live. My only trouble is, you know, it, it, this could be a fault of my own. <laughs> Because the Beatles have have recorded songs in so many different approaches. You know, I've always, I really shouldn't think this way, but there's a part of me that in the traditional aspect, you think of songs as being verse, verse, chorus, verse. Yeah, yeah. That way, you know, there are certain songs that only have verses and don't even have a chorus. And the Beatles wrote songs in many different ways that I kind of look down on songs that aren't as fully developed you know, you may have heard me say on on your channel here, there are certain songs that Paul has done where it isn't much of a song like that would be something, you know, mm -hmm. it's just repeated over and over again or um, cosmically conscious or mm -hmm. check by machine. Is, you know, mm -hmm. it's a line and it's what you build around it that makes it interesting. And there are people that love those songs and I love them too in its own way. But as, as a composition, I don't think as highly of it. But, I mean, About You is a good song. I just wish that there was a little bit more structure-wise put behind it. And that's it. It's definitely a worthwhile track. I love what you said about <laughs> if, if it wasn't on the album, you'd feel like it was missing or it really belonged there, even though you don't think of it as being a great song. It still belongs mm -hmm. on the album. But I, I understand what you mean there. Um, yeah, I like it a lot. I'm glad it's there. I wish there yeah. were more songs about you because I, you know, I love the rock inside of Paul and very often a big complaint about him is that he doesn't rock enough. Oh no, this is the antidote to that. The one that you give me the power to get out of bed when in the morning I'm feeling dead. That definitely feels very reminiscent of the post Beatles depression phase of McCartney's life. Like he definitely needs a rock to get him out of these funks and get him back to work. Mm. It's interesting though that Linda was there for the loss of the Beatles, but Heather was there for the loss of Linda, not a musical venture per se. So there's different parameters here. 
definitely worth comparison. But I want to press on because we come to the point of the album, which might legitimately be one of my favourite McCartney songs of all time. One of my favourite McCartney melodies, Ken. I can see you flush with panic. This is Uh-oh. Heather. this album this was one of the songs that i was kind of scared that i was going to hate something because i saw the title and i thought and i saw heather i was like oh no everyone's going to hate this song and then by the end of the track i was fully converted i, 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 I was really frothing at the mouth i was a, I, I was a zealot i was a real zealot ken uh, this is an instrumental for the most part i guess it's still classed as an instrumental even though there are lyrics later on but because it's mostly an instrumental, I'm going to address the fact that the strength of this song lies in the melody. This thing is instantly memorable. You just get sucked in by that jubilant, excitable groove. Uh, the notes, the chords, the sequence of changes, the shifts all together. More so than many other of his songs in his catalogue immediately convey a very strong emotion. Shockingly, the emotion is love, Ken. But the music itself here, to me, is the embodiment of falling in love. This song feels like he's falling in love. It's the emotive expression. It's the uh, the musical poetry of Paul falling in love with Heather. Now, regardless of whether you know you like Heather or not, most people are probably going to say not. The emotion on display here, you can just apply it to something else and then feel what Paul is feeling, you know. The fact that that, that that this was just him vamping on the piano, stream of consciousness, whilst being in love with Heather, with her in the house, with her probably naked behind him. That's how I picture the scene. But this song is just a stream of consciousness expression of being in love and it does it effortlessly. Ken, I kind of need you to say nothing but positive things about this song. So please tell me your totally unprompted thoughts on this lovely dedication to Heather Mills. I love the song the first time I heard it. Oh, yes. Yeah, I always think about the full musical aspects of a song. And um, first of all, one of my initial impressions was that that melody which is, you know, again, so catchy. Paul has that gift. I think it would have worked extremely well as for film scoring, you know, as an instrumental bed mm-hmm. somewhere in a film. Um, but I love the approach 
and Paul certainly never invented this. Um, this entire song is three and a half minutes long, and the first two and a half minutes is instrumental. So he doesn't even sing yeah. <laughs> until the last <laughs> song. And then you're really into it, and you want to keep it going, and then the song ends. <laughs> and um, that's something that I just... I know back in the days of um, big bands, they did that a lot. They would play a, the melody of a song instrumentally and it would go on for a minute or two minutes before you get to the to someone singing the song and then the song would end. So it kind of reminds me of that kind of an approach. So, but I love the, the, the entire, um, the melody, the instrumentation, it works extremely well. I wouldn't say it's stream of consciousness, Paul. I think that it, the it's a, really one verse of a, of a lyric, but it's extremely poetic. He wrote this one poem and then he built this whole song around it. And I think it's beautiful. It's very simple, but it's very effective. And um, I just want to read it because this is one lyric that I wanted to print out. I'm going to fly to the moon, check in out of space, find me a suitable plot, build myself a place. There I will stay for a year and a day until the cares of my life blow away. And I will dance to a runcible tune. What a runcible. Ooh, what a great word. Of my heart. That's another case of Paul using a word there, which has been used in poetry. English this was, tea, yeah. 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 What was the word in English tea? Um, oh, it was uh, um, per, per adventure. Per adventure, yes. And um, runcible was a word that was invented by the poet Edward Lear. Oh, cited his poem, The Owl and the Pussycat. Runcible um, means uh, it's a nonsense word. That's all it is, really. Oh. He, just, he just stuck it in there to be fancy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfectly cromulent word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a shout out to my Simpsons fans. Uh, yeah, for me, this, along with Ronnie Enter Jaipur, make up the heart and soul of the Heather section of the album. Uh, this is a masterpiece, a 10 out of 10 of the mid-McCartney era, uh, sorry, of the modern McCartney era. You know, I thought I was only going to be saying stuff like this to annoy and troll the listeners out there, but these are my genuine feelings. The electric guitar in the middle is is joyous. Uh, I've got to give a shout out to those ooh vocals, which basically herald what Abe uh, and Rusty, along with Brian, are going to be doing for the next 20 years, just going, ooh, ah, for McCartney in the background, especially on the Wings songs. Mm. I mean, Ken, I was always going to love this one. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jazz Street, Squid, Uwele Soleil, Peacocks, Hey Hey, you know, whether it's an, uh, a true instrumental or a half instrumental or a semi-instrumental, whatever McCartney does, I'm always drawn to it. And, uh, yeah. For me, it is one of the most sublime things he's ever written. Uh, it totally, for me, conveys that almost like teenage love, like girlfriend from London Town wishes it could convey the young love, the uh, the, the the excited, heart-pounded feeling of falling in love again and feeling young again. Uh, that That is this song. Um, you know, you can tell that Paul on this song feels back in the sunshine again, which is funny enough because that is also the title of the next track on this album, which is The Back in the Sunshine. Here we are, 
Okay, I've already made it clear that I love this album, but this is where it starts to flag for me. And this song is endemic of that feeling. Uh, I have no particular hostilities in particular towards it, but part of me feels that if it was a shorter, more upbeat song instead, then maybe I wouldn't feel about this part of the album. But instead we get a very jammy, very repetitive, simplistic song that uh, is basically either recycling things we've already heard before or doing stuff that is going to be repeated later better. The song does throw a lot of stuff at you, but I'm getting bored at a rate quicker than I'm getting excited with the new exciting shifts. Fortunately, the whole thing's so chillaxed and languid that you really don't mind. You can just move to the next song, uh, but I don't see myself clamoring to listen to it again in the future but Ken the real question is is this at the bottom of the pantheon of McCartney sun titled songs <laughs> let me think of all of them uh, if it's at the bottom it's still a really good song I really like it a lot I don't feel the same way as you do you don't put this above feel the sun and good times coming though come on we all, we, we all know that no <laughs> no one fo- look folks folks we all like a laugh at a joke here but don't insult press to play in front of Ken he will pull a blade on you I'm, I'm just warning you I can handle every opinion as long as it's- <laughs> as long as you've taken the time to listen and really get to know it out <laughs> but um, no I like this song a lot I love the message in it um, that's another one where lyrics matter to the song um, yeah. you gotta wonder if this is like his way of saying um, like these are the I've heard it could be about the last days of Linda yeah um, he says here we are back in the sunshine again no more worries no more pain oh being in Arizona uh, towards, towards the end of her life perhaps yeah that makes sense um, well here we are oh, wait a minute. we're leaving in we're leaving behind all our trouble and strife. That's the way it's going to be the rest of my life. Um, life's too short to spend it lonely. You only throw it away. Listen to your voice of reason. Yeah, call it a day. Take a ride out to the land of the free. Don't hurry. Take your time. Take your time. Come spend it with me. But sometimes I wonder, you know, it's almost like, you know, he's welcoming a new love. Mm-hmm same time as you know breaking free from the past love and there's no more pain for that so it's you know it could be a cathartic song in a way you know addressing both relationships um i don't know but i like it a lot i like the melody a lot it's a, got a loose bluesy feel to it i know his son james plays electric guitar on it but i can't tell if it's james or paul because they both play guitar on the song yeah uh, but i like the feel of it i like the vibe of it it's another thing, like I said, this this looseness, this spontaneity feel of this is what the band sounds like, in this case with James adding guitar. But I like it a lot. It's definitely not some throwaway track. I think it's probably one of the most underrated tracks of the album. And it's one that for a long time was a sleeper for me. And now I like it a lot. 
I hope I get to your point soon in in the future. Then, Ken, I hope I can get to the point where it's no longer a sleepy full moon. Mm. Um, you 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 read the lyrics earlier, and the 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 real saving grace of the song, the eucatastric uh, elef- uh, element of this song that prevents it from being a total write off is is that middle eight bridge of it where Paul kind of shifts the key and it gets a little more dramatic and it tugs at the old McCartney nostalgia heartstrings, you get all gooey. Absolutely great stuff. Um, I'm actually trying to like put my finger on like what part of McCartney's career this reminds me of the most. And it has that kind of, you know, there's like a couple of relaxed faux yacht rock tracks on Flaming Pie. This feels like a kind of continuation of that Um I will say though that this song has lots of shifts, lots of changes to it. It's not done nearly to the same effect as we're going to see with Rinse the Raindrops. Um, and despite the fact that I've got an issue with Rinse the Raindrops being far too long and doing that kind of thing far too much, I still say it's far more effective than this song. And it makes me think of things like Winter Rose Love Awake versus After the Ball Million Miles. Like, don't put these two things so close together. You invite comparison. I feel like he's fallen into the same trap again. Um, I'm not hearing what you're hearing, but then there you go. <laughs> sorry, say, um, say that again, Ken. I, I spoke over yeah. you, sorry. No, that's okay. I just said I'm not hearing what you're hearing, but that's okay. No worries. Moving I think on. the song flows really well, I think. Back in the sunshine again. It's a fun vibe. I just... It's a bit of a skipper for me. Okay. Moving ever onwards, we have the third and final single for the album in the form of Your Loving Flame. Folks, I hate to be a downer here. I just don't like this one. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I love a good McCartney ballad. This isn't one of them. Again, reminded of, however absurd, once upon long ago, No More Lonely Nights, the worst of the 80s ballad. This song feels like something we've heard before. It feels standard and familiar. If anything, it's like warm and beautiful. You know, it's a, towards the end of the album ballad that everyone likes more than me um you know there are flashes of classic paul but they're brief and you know 
they really feel resolved, except like the title phrase, like when, when he goes, inside your loving flame. Like that to me feels like he's actually going somewhere. Um, oh, no, because he goes, nothing feels the same. Like a proper McCartney setup. Your loving flame payoff. Everything else feels disjointed. The setups of the payoffs don't work quite as well. And that's just the only part of the song that works for me. Uh, again, people have a pop-up one, two, three, four, five, let's go for a drive. I'd say the whole verse here where he's just awkwardly rhyming things with like you and blue and the timing's all off and weird. That's a far greater lyrical crime. Um, like certain points of driving rain, this is just one of those songs that feels like recycled ideas regurgitated for no reason. I don't particularly like it. Ken, do you agree? Yes or no? Speak your piece. Um, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I will definitely agree with, uh, when I first heard Your Love and Flame, I was not the least bit impressed by it because melodically, it's just extremely repetitive. And um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it just didn't move me melodically. Mm -hmm. And that one part of the song that you were just referring to, the what am I to do if I don't have you? Please say you hate it too. Come on. Yes, come on, Ken. I I don't mind the fact that even, it's kind of interesting that that particular moment in the song, it's on the same note, you know, which is not (laughs) something that Paul does. It's actually something that's, because it's different, it's interesting in that regard, but the lyrics there just sound like something that, you know, a child could write. Um, (laughs) <laughs> really but i get that I get overall that. I, it's an okay at best love song it's one of the weakest of his entire career as as love songs go and i'm sorry to say that because he's one of the greatest love songs writers of all time so but yeah i can agree with what you're saying i love the guitar solo in the middle even though it's just melody i love the sound of that um, oh no, Ken, but, Ken, if you can do a guitar solo that's just the melody and it sounds good, that's good guitar playing because, you know, you've really got to uh, get underneath the skin with that and do something a little a, a little more esoteric. Um, but yet again, I, I want to say one thing and, I, I, you know, I believe in, in respecting every opinion that there is out there, but... You're putting down No More Lonely Nights, which I think is one of the greatest of his ballads. And Once Upon a Long Ago to me is brilliant. There's a lot of work put behind the melody and the entire arrangement of that song. Those are, those are two fine <clears throat> love songs in Paul's. Uh, it, it might just be because my parents are such massive fans of Nigel Kennedy, and so I have to, I have to dislike. Uh, well, there's logic for you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just being a rebellious teen at just 30 years answer, old. Just answer this for me: No more lonely nights. What don't you like about that song? It's just not a very. It's just it just doesn't resonate with me. I don't particularly like the melody. I think the chorus is quite cheesy and overly sentimental. Uh, I just think he, he pushes it a little too far in that uh, possibly a, 
the most middle of the road commercial movie made around that time are much more of like I'm not saying I don't like the bemoaned songs of that period. I'm a huge Spies Like Us man. I love Spies Like Us. Give me Spies Like yeah. Us over oh. No More Lonely Nights. Okay, but that's two specifically different styles of music there. <laughs> Those are two completely different songs. But I mean, you're saying middle of the road. You could say with a little luck was middle of the road. Do you like with a little luck? Those the, those weird little synths played by the three of them have something transcendent about them. The, the, there isn't that moment on Once Upon a Long Ago for me. There the, the just isn't. Uh, Ken, we, we have to, we have to press on though because our next stop uh, we are we are we are just pulling into a little place called Jaipur. a board game that I play with my friends called Jaipur and uh, it's like a, 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 a weird like cloth trading game like you're like a, a trader on like on a camel trading your herbs and spices very very fun game and whenever uh-huh. we play it I have to put on riding into Jaipur and I've ruined the game for everyone because I keep playing this song um, yeah, look folks this is an all time favourite of mine it's called riding into Jaipur um, Ken, first things first, before I talk about the song, he never says riding into Jaipur once, does he? The song should be called Riding... No, he does. He says riding to Jaipur. I'm riding to Jaipur, riding through the night. Okay. Folks, folks, write in. Do you agree? Is it riding to or into? What does he sing? I'm saying he says riding yes. to Jaipur. You're right. I guess I didn't pay careful enough attention. He should have called it riding to Jaipur. For 22 years, folks, Ken has been ignorant to this. <laughs> He's been ignorant. But um, the only reason I spot things like that is that Tom Waits did a similar thing for his album, Foreign Affairs. There was a song called Foreign Affair. The song Blue Valentines appeared on Blue Valentine. Swordfish Trombone appeared on Swordfish Trombones. 
and the song called Frank's Wild Years is not on the album called Frank's Wild Years. So I'm very used to uh, discography discrepancies like that. But um, yeah, as far as this musically uneducated podcast is concerned, this song rests comfortably amongst McCartney's greatest ever compositions. Uh, I'm not willing to budge on that whatsoever. It's a hill I will gladly spill my blood upon. Um, just like Heather, this is the second song for me on this album that encapsulates, translates, and emits the feeling of being in love, being newly in love. Uh, you know, Mills talks about McCartney literally dancing in the street giddishly in this period. And this song perfectly reflects that boyish joy. Um, you know, when you've just fallen in love and you've just had a kiss for the very first time and you can't wait to tell your friends all about it, that kind of thing. Um, the melody for this song is just uh, uh, an, an incomprehensible level of joy for me. That the, 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 those, those bright notes in with that kind of jaunty marching ever onward pace uh is is just so beautiful and he really conveys true contentment in the melody here that, that, that there are those moments of complete calm it's hard not to picture paul and heather on an elephant's back or something as equally exotic and opulent and you know like so many mccartney songs this is just such a beautiful ultra vivid 1080p snapshot that is generated inside your mind also we get a very simple uh, bit of lyricism it feels very uh, i want you she's so heavy it's just riding into jaipur riding through the night riding with my baby oh what a delight oh what a delight it is that is uh, all we get and it's very interesting that a song set in india would have a mantra like set of lyrics to it, of course. You can read between the lines here. Uh, Paul himself hasn't really dabbled in Indian aestheticism since the video for this one, but now we get to hear him do the music. Uh, and he proves that it's not just George's thing. Um, we get a very sitar sounding like instrument called a tampura being played by Rusty Anderson to stunning effect. Uh, you get some great tabla-like sounds from Abe. It's listed as electronic percussion on the album. So I'm guessing maybe he just programmed into a drum kit tabla-like sounds. That's likely what happened. Um, but yeah, just the idea that this is just him riding with his baby. Oh, what a delight. Oh, what a delight it is. Uh, resonate with me completely, totally, uh, purely, uh, and I cannot help but, you know, try and insert myself into this song and feel those emotions again. There's a, a, a wonderful, vicarious falling in love quality to this song and with Heather that I just find myself impossible to resist. Ken, you, you love this one too, right? Come on, come on. Yes, I do. Yes! But I just want to say, it, the more I'm hearing it in my head, I think he says into Jaipur when he's singing. I have to play it back after this, but... Folks, we're going to play it again right now, even though we've likely already just played it. <laughs> but uh, no, I love this song for all the reasons you mentioned, and I love the fact that you use the word mantra because the words are very much like a mantra, and even the melody, which is not... It's not very melodic. It's just, It stays on the same note for quite a bit of it. Um, riding into Jaipur... Well, a couple of notes, but it's... 
and it fits with the whole song. And I love the melody of what's being played instrumentally. That da 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 da. da. It's very simple, but it's very effective, and um, it has like a somewhat of a dreamy. Mm. You use the word sublime when you were when talking about the song Heather. It's kind of like that for me with riding into Jaipur. It's very simple. It's very effective. It works just the way it is. I love the instrumentation on it. You know, whether you're using real Indian instruments or not, it gives you that feel. And uh, the uh, addition of the electric guitar as well was just a nice little undercut, just a just to just kind of tie it back to the rest of the album. And it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, the, the Western strings on Within You, Without You versus the Eastern instrumentation. They, you know, Paul was bringing East and West together if, like you say, it wasn't actually real Indian instrumentation. But yeah, incredible song, top tier McCartney, probably in my top 25, probably in my top 25 quite easily. Wow. Dylan Seavey loves it. Uh, no, uh, yeah. We've we've uh, we've definitely conversed. Um, uh-huh. We've both. Um, I've got two episodes with him in the future coming up. We've got back in the US, which I can't wait for. But um, uh-huh. he also bagged quite early on. I'm talking years ago, uh, the concert for George episode, uh-huh. uh, which I I've been given a bit of money for my thirtieth. I might just buy it on vinyl. I might just get the concert for George on vinyl. It's very expensive, but. You know, I definitely want seven discs worth of uh, the Raga at the start, you know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of the greatest concerts ever, Concert for George. I'll See You In My Dreams is one of the best, it's one of the best performances. Oh, my God. Mm. Every time I watch that concert, I cry at the end. Oh, no, no you cry several times. It's a... Uh, it's it, it, it's a good cathartic uh, viewing experience, it really is. Uh, right, everyone, we'll go and move on to the quote-unquote official final song of Driving Rain, a.k.a. the song that was listed on the back of the album Box Art that was printed at the time. We've had a lot of sunshine on this album, but it's now time to uh, turn about face and rinse the raindrops.
if there was ever a a dissonance between the length of a song and the amount of stuff I have to say about it, this might be one of the greatest gaps ever. I mean, we could go through every single uh, self-indulgent mode this song goes through, but I think it would just tire the audience. Um, you know, like any Tinder date, I'm fixated on length here. Uh, this song is just far too long. It's, it's, let, hang on, Spotify, how long is this song? 10 minutes, eight seconds long. Uh, we have, a, it changed the two minutes 46 uh, mark. It changes again at four minutes 58, again at seven minutes, and then again after that. And whilst it's quite fun to hear Paul do all these variations on the same riff and lyrics. Um, in the end, it just feels like another kind of self-indulgent um, orchestra theme or something like that. Um, it's certainly fun to see, like, like I say, do all these different modes and it feels kind of close to a, a McCartney closing medley, but instead of lots of different things, it's just the same thing over and over again done differently. So I get the artistic intent there, but uh, yeah, I thought I thought I was going to be won over by this one, maybe even ironically, but uh, yeah, you need to listen to this song all the way through once, and that's about it as far as I'm concerned. I can understand your feelings about this, um, but as someone who would love to see Paul just jam and go at it and not care about how long the song is, I'm not against overindulgence. The problem that I have with a song like this is that if I'm listening to the, to the CD, I listen to it all the way through. If I want to mm -hmm. listen to it again, I gotta hear Rinse the Raindrops for 10 minutes again. You know, <laughs> I can listen to it once in a while, all the way through, but not every single time. Um, it's very well, demanding. I, I, okay, Ken, Ken, here, here, here we are. I'm on ramp right now. Long-haired lady and backseat of my car, arguably one of the most indulgent double pairings if we don't count Ramon in the middle, you know, two big closing enders. Those two together total 10 minutes 35 seconds and uh -huh. yet those two together even with Ramon in the middle would feel so much shorter than 10 minutes 7 seconds of Rinse the Raindrops you know this song it fakes it fakes progression it fakes it and um, I really wish it just ended at like 2 minutes 40 nice little short heavy rocker at the end uh, you know, like maybe like a hard rocking great day kind of thing, uh, and then just leave on a high. But by the 10 minute mark, I'm literally propping my head up, like, trying not to fall asleep. Uh, good, good idea, bad execution. It's different ways of looking at it. You know, there there are times when, and I'm glad to see Wildlife is an album that's getting a bit more respect in, in recent years, but oh, I, totally. love, I love Mumbo. I love the way that Thank song, you, Tony. <laughs> and for whatever it is, four minutes, they're jamming. I could listen to Mumbo for 10 minutes, but it doesn't mean that if that was a 10-minute version on Wildlife, 
I would keep repeating it over and over and over. <laughs> you know, it's it's that kind of thing. I, I still am curious to hear when when Paul jams and goes on for a while, what the song would sound like. Um, I'm glad it's there. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily want it to be shorter, because when I'm in the mood to hear Paul rock out for ten minutes, rinse the raindrops can work for me, but. You know, I understand your point of view. I wish that Paul would do more of that stuff so people would understand how great he is at jamming and with his band, and especially when he uses his vocals in different ways, when he screams, as he does in Rinse the Raindrops a bit, you know. Uh, you take his song, hey, Monkberry Moon Delight, we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Probably the greatest screaming vocal song of Paul's career surpassing Oh Darling, you know, because it's continuous for five and a half minutes. I'd kill to hear 10 minutes. Give me another four minutes of Monkberry Moon Delight. But even with that, some people like yourself, even if you love it, you might say that's overindulgent. Mm-hmm. I'd still want to have the 10 minutes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it ends at the right time but I'd still be curious to hear him go on more and more about it. So maybe something like Rinse the Raindrops deserves to be on a different kind of release where Paul's just jamming with his band. You can get 10-minute songs and put four or five of them on, a, on an album or a CD. Um, but I'm still glad it's out there. I wish he'd do more of this stuff. It sounds a bit similar to what I was saying earlier, like... Say if there was a 2 minute 49 version of Rinse the Raindrops on the official album, but then on the archive, years later, oh, this was actually 10 minutes long. In contrast to what I said earlier, I'll be like, oh, I get why they cut this down, but it's fun that we have this longer version now. You know, in in, in the same way that it'd be fun to have the full Helter Skelter, for example, that kind of thing. Um, well, the full Helter Skelter, what you're talking about with the 28 minutes is very much like the slow, it was taken from the slow versions that we've mm-hmm. heard. So it's not nearly as exciting <laughs> as the version that's on the White Album. I'm sure there's probably a lot of people that love the, the slow version too, but it's not what you're thinking. If you're thinking it's like that version from the White Album. Man, how big would the blisters on Abe Laborial's fingers be? Oh my God, they'd be like, they'd be like that, wouldn't they? Oh my God. <laughs> um, right on to the final song now we've we've done it Ken we've not quite hit the target that we've set but we've definitely been a lot quicker than we normally are on this show uh, finally 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 we have the hidden track of this album and I am sure that me as a Brit I'm going to have a totally uh, correct opinion on this song and not have any of my own biases whatsoever neither are you ken being an american this is freedom this is my right a right given by god to live a free life to live in freedom talking about
really do. I'm going to have to drop some crazy-ass opinions on this song here. Despite being hardly the most uh, rejuvenative or fresh thing on the album, despite the composition being rather rudimentary with an over-reliance on the chorus and all of this wartime uh, Bush-era uh, connotation going on with it, and despite the fact that I'm English with a completely different concept of what freedom means, dot, 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 I actually love this song. Uh, yeah, I know it shouldn't be at my street, but I think because of my own physical, cultural, and historical distance from this song when it was released, you know, in the same way something like Mary Had a Little Lamb or Ebony and Ivory, I'm able to ignore that baggage and just enjoy the song for what it is. And for what it is, it's an enjoyably fun, if goofy and unfinished McCartney rocker. Uh, like the album itself, it's it, this is the most context-laden song on a context-laden album. Uh, you know, this is McCartney being as direct and upfront as he has since, like, Give Ireland Back to the Irish or It's Not On. Um there's no way you can you, you can talk about this album uh, without getting into 9-11, Bush, Iraq, Western imperialism, American politics in the 2000s. These are all things that are well documented about this song. Do you think we've got enough distance now as a fandom? Like, I've just said that I've got enough distance between the song to enjoy it for what it is. Would you say you have? Would you say other people possibly have? Or do you reckon this song is stuck in 2001? Well, my impression is I like the song for the very beginning. Um, the only problem I ever had with it was that it sounded like he wrote it in five minutes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I, my only real big complaint is that, you know, it's a couple of verses and a great, great chorus, which he's top tier, top tier. Yes. Simple and just what was needed for that time. And um, I just wish he wrote one or two more verses and it would have sounded more complete. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with writing a great song in five minutes. You know, I don't, I don't blame the guy for having that kind of talent for writing things so effortless. effortless. He, but he wasn't afforded the time, was he? This is what we were always going to get. Uh, again, there was more context upon the song, even even more so, you know, uh, he never would have written the song had the circumstances not arose. So there is no, there is no what if with this song. These were the circumstances. He had a certain amount of time. If there was a different amount of time, it wouldn't have been the circumstances. So this is this is what Paul does when he has to write a song on the fly after a disaster. Um, thank God he hasn't done it before or since, really. I mean, Mary Had a Little Lamb is the closest thing we've had, um, though that was more political than global political, I guess would be the best way to put that one. This is Paul truly reaching out for a song for the world here. Mm -hmm. um, I, I adore the sentiment 
Paul, like, you know, after 9-11, when the Queen, uh, God rest her soul, God save the King, um, when uh, after 9-11, the Queen asked the, uh, the, the Queen's guard to play the Star Spangled Banner. And that was a very moving, emotional thing. And it's nice to see Paul do something similar here, uh, you know, reach out for America, the country that supported him more than England since 1970, the one country that really made him a global superstar. Because if you're famous in America, you're fucking famous everywhere. And, you know, America still, to this day, treats McCartney better than we do here in the UK. And so it makes total sense that McCartney would feel motivated to connect with this group of people, these always like 300, 600 million people or something like, like that uh, to connect with them and give something back. Uh, It's, it's, it's the same expression of emotion that was obviously carried on through to the concert itself and him headlining that, stealing the, the, the wind of the cells from the who, uh, but, but whatever. Um, yeah, this song for me totally is in the right place at the right time. It's certainly, it, it, it was on the right side of history at the time and then history changed its side. And it's certainly one of those songs that, is a fantastic example of how meaning can change over time. But rather than say, you know, Mother Mary just being a phrase for 30 years and then someone saying, oh, it could be your mother, within a couple of years, this song's meaning had already changed. And, you know, this is already a period, an album of McKinney's career that is already forgotten. And a song like this being one of the biggest songs from that time, having to be forgotten now really doesn't help the rest of the album in terms of being that that well remembered. Um, this is a, a, a time capsule. This is a wonderful snapshot of 2001. But fundamentally, Ken, it's a damn good song, I'd say. I really enjoy it. Well, I, I agree with just about everything you said there. Um, but I will say, and, and I'm only relating to you know, the podcast shows that I've done and just about everybody that I've spoken to, the fans don't think highly of the song Freedom. Maybe it was just something to, to write in the moment. Um, some people frown on the fact that when the concert took place in, in Madison Square Garden, that Paul was pushing the Driving Rain album. <laughs> Then that's annoying, but it, it's a, it's a separate issue. It's a separate. I know issue. it's a separate issue, but yeah, I understand everything that you're saying there. I I do believe Paul could have put a little bit more work behind the song. Um, he certainly put more work behind "Give Ireland Back to the Irish," as far as I'm concerned. But I love, I still love "Freedom." I don't knock the song. I think that the sentiments in the song are what was necessary at that moment. I just don't understand why people trash it. The fans that I've that I've spoken to, maybe because they think it was, you know, a quick write-off that he could have done in his sleep. Um, and it was performed magnificently at the concert at Madison Square Garden, the concert for 9-11. So, and, and it is a shame 
that a lot of people look at driving rain, they associate it with Heather Mills, they associate it with freedom and what was going on then as, as a bad time. That shouldn't reflect what you think of the songs if you actually take the time and listen to them because mm -hmm. a lot of great stuff throughout this album as we've discussed. And, um, you know, sometimes that has an effect, unfortunately, on the way that people view certain works. Um, uh, Ken, Ken, I mean, not, I, not... I'm just saying Flaming Pie is an album that people also hold dear to them, not only because it was the album after the Beatles anthology, but because we all knew Linda was passing away. So people think of it in a, in a different way than they might other McCartney albums. Um, and okay. some people might think of Driving Rain as the Heather album. Ken, people hate on Ebony and Ivory in the modern day because oh. they feel embarrassed that they helped it get to number one. It's it's it, it's total. The hatred towards Ebony and Ivory is totally a projection on the part of the fan base at the time, and now they're being confronted by all the cool kids saying, "What did you buy, Ebony and Ivory, loser?" And then they're panicking on the schoolyard, thinking that the cool kids don't like them anymore. That's the same thing with Freedom. I really feel that way. Um, you know, I a prerequisite for being a Beatles fan in the modern day and being a good, conscientious, thoughtful person is having to separate the art from the artist. You cannot be a Lennon fan without some degree of separating the art from the artist. Otherwise, you have certain moral tribulations and quandaries. And, yeah, it's weird that McCartney wrote Give War a Chance back in 2001. That was the joke yada 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 but this isn't the emblem of american imperialism that everyone marks it out to be i mean i find it more interesting that he refers to god in the yeah. in in the song more than the 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 warmongering the supposed warmongering you know this is my right a right given by god um you know i can't even think of a time he's even directly referenced a, a singular monotheistic god in lyric before he mentions a God riding on a swan's back on this one before, but here, you know, Paul writing about the, the American uh, singular monotheistic Christian God is interesting in itself. I found that quite uh, rousing. Um, anyone who thinks that he's not appealing to that market, doesn't understand the song. He's certainly not singing about Buddha or Allah in this song. You know, this is my right, I'd right given by God. It's a song about America for America. This is, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not even saying that this song is on the wrong side of history, but I imagine there are many songs that are not politically correct that still have musical value to them. And so if you have a complete political objection to this song i would need to at least hear your thoughts on the objective musical quality of it it feels awful ken it it feels like i'm defending a klu klux klan album from 1833 or something I, i'm not i'm not doing that i'm just saying that there are certain reasons one could give for disliking an album and saying that it's 
the pro-war Bush album feels just like a platitude that you might say just to avoid how to deal with it critically. Um, I, I think the song stands up on its own without all of that baggage. It's a fun little song. Um, the Eric Clapton solo is a bit of a letdown. I find that more controversial than all the politics surrounding the song. Why so? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it just it didn't feel as as epic to me as it should have. Um, you know, if you in in the same way that if you hadn't told me that George Martin wasn't on that it be when I was a, an, an early fan, I, I wouldn't have recognised. I wouldn't have I, I wouldn't have guessed that this was Eric Clapton unless someone had told me. Um, I really wouldn't have at all. Okay, well, I don't know. Uh, I I will always defend the song Freedom. I don't feel like no, I love it. It's a good my, song. My interpretation is not Paul screaming. You know, this is strictly for America. You know, this is for we all want freedom in the world, and and it's being abused here. Look what just happened. You know, in this horrible tragedy. That's how I looked at the song. Well, no, but I mean, even if it, the meaning was changed in popular culture, in the zeitgeist, because of things going on at the time, don't blame Paul and the song. You know, it was it, it was written at a certain time for a certain mindset. And I think for the audience, Paul was writing it for in that moment, in a moment of unparalleled uncertainty and grief and despair and worry. It totally makes sense that he wrote a song like this. It totally does. And uh, if you approach it, like, it's like when I went into Egypt Station expecting it to be a classic, like, Wings album, and I didn't like it at first, and then I went back into it with a more modern uh, perspective, and I, I, I totally fell in love with the album. Just go into this knowing that it, it was, there's a little bit of mental homework to do before you listen to the song. But besides that, I really enjoy it. It's part of a great album, a fantastic album closer. Two thumbs up from me, Ken. Two, two thumbs up both for this song and for the album in general. We've just finished Driving Rain, everyone. Uh, overall, I'd say that this is the probably, probably the most underrated McCartney album in terms of from from this point onwards, there will never be a McCartney album as underrated as this one. I think this is the last great, uh, unfairly reviewed McCartney album. Everything else gets a fair shake from this point onwards. I think you're probably right about that, although I still think overall in his career, I think Press to Play is the most underrated of all of his albums. Oh, I, I'm not disputing that with you, Kenneth, whatsoever. <laughs> but you know just from my standpoint i always like driving rain these days i love the album it's really risen and, i you know, think i might love it as well ken i think i might i'm not saying for definite we'll see in a few weeks but uh, i find it hard to press play and not listen to it from start to finish that's a marvel in itself. I know it's Paul and I'm a Paul McCartney podcaster and there's all sorts of biases and whatever, but 
I know what I like. I know what I don't like. There are albums where I skip a lot of stuff quite regularly, uh, even albums that I love. But this, when I put on Driving Rain, I'm ready for Driving Rain, all one hour and seven minutes of it for good or bad, uh, like any marriage. But I didn't spend 200 grand on diamonds whilst in Jaipur. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'll tell you, in so many ways, I do think there are times when when there are people who do podcast shows and they might overanalyze way too much, but guilty, guilty, so guilty. much like this is so much like so many other McCartney albums musically. It's extremely diverse. There's a lot of different styles that are on the album. Mm -hmm. There are rockers like lonely road. There are ballads like I do. There's modern sounds like she's given up talking, spinning on an axis, tiny bubble. There's traditional sounds, your love and flame. Uh, your way really harkens back to early 70s. There's a mixture of all that. There's, uh, you know, the modern sounds of having David Kahn produce the album. Mm -hmm. But there's also times when, like I said, it'll sound like old McCartney. And um, I just have found, like I said earlier, that a lot of people that don't like the very modern stuff, and, and this album is not entirely that, <laughs> Um, a lot of fans resist that as as well as press to play. And yet, strangely enough, McCartney too, for all its weirdness, <laughs> is now praised. So, you know, you try and figure all that out. Um, and, and I've always said, nothing is ever permanent in the way that we look at things. There's no way of telling 10 years from now or 50 years from now what new generations of fans are going to be saying about these albums. They might, they, might, they might like Driving Rain and not like Ram. You just don't know. Um, that is the nature of art. So all that we're doing is saying how we feel in the moment. And uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank, uh, thank you for having me on. I didn't hear you there. I'm not hearing you at all right now. Ken, this has been absolutely enthralling enlightening you know i don't think there's ever been a bad conversation between us in all fairness if i do toot my own horn there to do yours as well it's an interesting album to talk about it really is the divisive ones always are there's always more to talk about with driving rain than there ever will be about the you know it's not like band on the run because only the smallest of percentages are ever going to have anything negative to say about it but with this one, there is still a debate. It has not been solved yet. But as you said, things always changed. I'm sure people in 1969 assumed that Sgt. Pepper would be the greatest album ever forever. Mm -hmm. And now and now it is re re Revolver. Maybe we, we could be moving towards a future where Driving Rain is the Flaming Pie and Flaming Pie is the new off the ground. Who knows how the order will change. But... That, that that doesn't matter. People have only come here today to hear our opinions on these songs we've given them. Ken, yes or no? Do you like Driving Rain? Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. Folks, <laughs> there you have it. You've been listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. I've been your host, Sam Walls. I do indeed enjoy the album as well. Yes, 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 from me as well. My guest today has been the most esteemed, most kind, generous, thoughtful 
hilarious Ken Michaels who bestows his presence upon the show with the grace of a demigod. And it's always enjoyable to have him on. Uh, I was always in, uh, looking forward to hearing his thoughts on this album. You've heard them now as well. I hope you've been enjoying it. Ken, thank you so much for coming on, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Nobody builds me up better than you. <laughs> now, Ken, Ken, if you want me to like record an opening intro for each of your episodes of our show, ladies and gentlemen, like like the, uh, the uh, Saturday Night Live guy, I'll gladly do that for you. Okay. Uh, but you, you, sir, you are the pod father. You certainly are. You certainly are. And it's always good to have you on. I have had a career in radio, though, which is more than I've had as a podcaster. So, radio? Never heard of it, Ken. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, is 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 isn't isn't that something like you know soldiers used to use in World War Two or something? Oh my god! I think, I think but, uh, the last people to use it were the Flintstones. <laughs> Folks, seriously. If you follow my Twitter page, you'll see that I constantly post links to Ken's stuff as well as all of his competitions that he puts on his website. Links will be down below as always. Make sure you go and check out all of Ken's stuff, whether it is uh, Talk More Talk or Every Little Thing or Things We Said Today. Check it all out. It's tips, top stuff. Uh, he has guests that I could only ever dream of. Go and check it out, folks. But yep. Yeah, until next time, Ken, thank you for coming on Poor or Nothing. Peace and love. Thank you, Sam. Thanks to all of you for watching. Awesome. Peace and love, folks. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows some holly and some mistletoe will help to make the season bright. Tiny tots 
With their eyes all aglow We'll find it hard to sleep tonight They know that Santa's on his way He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every mother's child is gonna spy To see if reindeer really know how to fly And so I'm offering this simple phrase To kids from one to ninety-two Although it's been said many times, many ways Merry Christmas to you Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. 